everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Kaboom! I missed you, sound effect. <laughs> uh, we, we've been on hiatus doing all of our big lists uh, here at Critically Acclaimed. We did the best movies of 2019, we did the worst movies of 2019, we did the best movies of the decade, and we decided, for the sake of our sanity, because we don't want to revisit t- mm. like a whole decade's worth of crap, we're not going to do the worst movies of the decade, at the Need- very least not right now. Uh, needless to say, the worst film of the decade is The Human Centipede Part 3, uh, uh, without question, ooh. although Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie is also pretty down there. It's uh, it's pretty darn bad. Yeah. Uh, Cats rallied at the end. Ca- yeah, Cats really put put on a good show right there at yeah. the end. I, believe me, there are a lot of movies oh. that really piss me off in the 2010. <laughs> uh, maybe if you ask real nicely in our letters column for mm. We've Got Mail, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Maybe we'll talk about it there. But uh, for now, we're falling behind on our new movie releases, and we really want to get started. Uh, Before we move any further, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, My name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN. I write for other outlets occasionally as well. I don't have a cool nickname. Rockmeister McCool. In the letters column, I am often referred to as Rockmeister McCool. I am so grateful that I got to start that. That was off the top of my head, too. Oh, you, you picked a good one. I know. I feel really solid about it. Yeah. That should so, be your new Schmodown nickname. If you call me Rockmeister McCool, I will respond. <laughs> uh, however, if you just call me Whitney or Hey Asshole, I'll also respond to that. Uh, you know your name, don't you? <laughs> Thank you, fifth grade bully. Thank oh. you, fifth grade bully. It was mean to me. I'm so sorry. It was mean. Anyway, uh, so yeah, we got a lot to cover. We've been uh, a little bit behind. Some of our uh, movies we're going to review go date back as far as Christmas weekend, uh, but we're also going to talk about movies open this weekend. We are reviewing on this week's show, Get Ready, The Grudge, Underwater, Just Mercy, Doolittle, Tyler Perry's The Fall from Grace, Like a Boss, Les Miserables, not the the new one, the one that's nominated for Best for, uh, International Feature, mm. uh, Spies in Disguise, and Corpus Christi. And uh, and we missed a couple of big ones in there, too. Neither of us got to see Bad Boys. That sucks. Well, it's just in keeping with me not seeing any of the Bad Boys movies. Have you ever seen uh, any of the Bad Boys movies? No. Um, I, I loathe Michael Bay, and I've managed to steer around some of his bigger ones. I haven't seen either of his Bad Boys films. Okay. I also haven't seen the first of the Transformers films, although I saw all of the sequels. So weird. Uh, and I have not seen uh, Armageddon. I've mm. managed to to avoid that one I'm gonna until tell you now. This, I'm going to tell you this right now. Uh. You would hate Armageddon. <laughs> I'm sure I would. <laughs> Armageddon in particular, you would hate that movie. Mm. But I will say this. Here's why I think you will like Bad Boys 1. Okay. And again, I didn't see Bad Boys 4 Life. I still think it should have been called Bad Boys 3 Life since it's the third one in the series. It should have been called Three Bad Boys. And they added a cast member. Would have been nice. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and I and I have no defense for Bad Boys too. It is wall to wall stupid insanity. There is a scene in that movie where we get to linger on two rats having sex. I don't know why. That happened at the beginning of John Waters Pecker, but that's a John Waters film. <laughs> I highly doubt Michael Bay was doing it on purpose. Um, Bad Boys One started out, and this is true, as a vehicle, like an action comedy vehicle for John Lovitz and Dana Carvey. 
Okay, so it's going to be like broad, more slapstick. Yeah, kind of the, the whole the whole original movie is it's about mistaken identity. There's one cool cop and one like kind of family man cop, mm. and then they have to protect a witness who like saw some like horrible shit go down. And was, then Taylor Leone in the first one, right? Yeah, it was Taylor Leone. Yeah, okay. She's really good in that. Actually, it was one of her breakout roles. Um, and the whole gag, the whole plot of the movie revolves around Martin Lawrence has to pretend to be the cool cop. Okay. And Will Smith has to be a bad cop because she got her signals crossed and she won't trust them she thinks they're lying to her. That is totally a Dana Carvey, <laughs> John Lovett. That is the stupid yeah. $4 million cop comedy that Michael Bay took, barely changed the script, just did a polish on the dialogue so it would make sense when Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are talking about it, mm. and just added cool action. <laughs> I admire that. I just hmm. think that's a weird, weird, weird <laughs> thing. So I think in the weird, weird way, you would really like Bad Boys 1. Because it's kind of All Michael right. Bay not doing Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. It's Michael Bay doing like an SNL comedy. All right. But the Michael Bay way, so it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Well, and he he's always thought he's had a sense of humor. His movies aren't funny. But he, in, in many cases, he remember thinks when, they Remember are. when the robot tickled John Malkovich? That was funny. It, it was bizarre. I, I was taken a little aback by that scene when a, a giant robot is tickling John Malkovich I, on the tummy. I didn't realize that like heavy pieces of metal could like tickle. Yeah, would like just sort of like just brush up against you and go. <laughs> Maybe he's got like bumblebee. a like a very mild electric shock in his face. A little static yeah. like woo bumblebee. <laughs> you, you naughty car. <laughs> Can we not talk about Michael Bay films? Let's move on. Uh, let's yeah, okay. Let's let's move up in the world. Let's talk about uh, the big release from this last weekend that we did see. Mm-hmm. We'll start there and work our way backwards. Let's talk about a little film called Doolittle. Uh, Doolittle is a one hundred and seventy-five million dollar holiday blockbuster that got drunk and slept into January. <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's the. Um, Third film, uh, if you count the TV movie, based on the Doctor Doolittle books. Uh, the first one. Well, no, there was there was there was the Eddie Murphy movies. Oh, excuse those me. Those are very loosely based. Yeah. So there's actually those several several. Okay. The original. Oh, Doc- that's right. And there was a Doctor Doolittle two with Eddie Murphy. And then there was and a there Doctor Doolittle three with his daughter character yes, from the previous two video. movies. Yeah. So actually, there's a whole franchise. So there's, okay. Of Dr. There's Doolittle. a bunch of Doctor Doolittles. Um, um, it's based on a series of British kids books about a doctor who could speak to animals. Mm-hmm. I only ever read the first one, but I really liked it. Okay. Um, I haven't read it since I was a kid. I bet there's a whole bunch of colonial shit in there that would make my eyes roll back in my head. No. But like, I remember thinking it was cute. Mm. Um, that was turned into a film in the 1960s starring Rex Harrison, who was good casting. There's a couple of good musical numbers in that movie. It is very silly. It is very stupid. And somehow it was nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. It was one of those where just the Academy got a bug up its butt and got convinced that this was a big deal, even though it really, really, really wasn't. Uh, Doctor Doolittle is often considered one of the worst movies ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it's it's certainly whimsical, and if you're a little kid and you like animals, then it's going to be a little bit of fun. Yeah, it's not. It, it, it'd it's, be a good double feature with like Pete's Dragon yeah, or something. Yeah, it's, it's no be, no better or worse than Pete's Dragon, and yeah. uh, stupider. <laughs> There's some stupid shit. Now you've all, a lot of people have seen this clip of Rex Harrison singing to a seal who's wearing a wedding dress, and then as he's done singing this really romantic song to a seal, just throwing her off a cliff. <laughs> so bizarre. It makes it doesn't make much more sense in context. It really doesn't. <laughs> Uh, the premise of Dr. Doodle is he can speak to animals, not in that sort of magical Aquaman way, but he actually has taught himself 
like the grunts and noises that animals make uh, as their language. As in addition to mm. being a top flight medical mm. doctor and and veterinarian, he's also the world's most talented linguist because who else can do no. that? In in the original film, uh, he just sort of talked about what the animals were saying. Uh, in the Eddie Murphy film, they actually got like celebrities to voice the animals. Well, in the Eddie Murphy to, one to was a superpower. Right, like he was a little kid, and he could talk to animals. And his parents said, "You're weird." I I saw that movie, and I don't remember anything. I remember someone pooping on a guinea pig who was very vocal about how they didn't want to be pooped on, and that's the only thing that I've taken away from that movie. I remember Albert Brooks was a neurotic tiger. Oh yeah, that's that's what I remember. That's Um, pretty funny. Um, But yeah, it was a whole thing where they kind of took the whole idea of. Dr. Doolittle and made it like, oh, he's just not being himself and himself is talking to animals, which kind of takes a huge world of possibilities and makes it as small as it possibly can be. That was frustrating. I I just remember being bored and and blanded out. I Um, know I've seen the the second one. I couldn't tell you anything about it if you put a gun to my head. Dr. Doolittle 2 is gone. Gone from everybody's brain. Uh, but yeah, now now we are here. We are in 2020. Uh, Doolittle is back. Now it's just Doolittle. He's yeah. like Cher now. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't think time, her last name is Cher. Oh, well, no. But uh, Doctor Doolittle is played by Robert Downey Jr., uh, mm-hmm. who has terrible taste in projects. Apart <laughs> apart from Iron Man, he kind of lucked into that. Uh, but He's only made like three non-Marvel movies in the last ten years. Mm. One of which was The Judge, which is really bad. Yeah, it's it's tr- looking. It's trying to look like a real movie, and somehow Robert Duvall got an Oscar nomination for it. Mm. It's a terrible screenplay. It's like it's really, really, yeah, like really story, trash. Nobody thought about the the ramifications of anything going on. In it's that really movie. bad. He was also in Chef, which was quite good, but that was like a cameo. He's got like one scene. He has one scene, and that's also He's good, that's he and John Favreau saying, "Let's take a break from this Marvel stuff for a second and get back to you know yeah. the real thing." And now um, that he's done with the MCU, it's time to move on to his big passion project. This turd. This gigantic, expensive, baffling, badly made turd. Yeah, terribly expensive. They got a huge cast of celebrity actors to voice animals. Mm. Uh, it takes place in eighteen uh, and yeah. um, it's they're, they're, history. Uh, oh, oh, century. The, the queen is sick, but it's never clear which queen. Well, she's a, she's a teenage queen, so I'm not even sure which one mm. that would be. <laughs> like I, I realize, I realize that sounds like a Bowie song or something, but like no, mm. I. Get, Maybe Victoria. No, I, 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 th- I think it's Young Victoria. Okay. It's supposed to be, so it's Victoria. Really Young Victoria, yeah, not, really. not like the movie Young Victoria with Emily no, Blunt, but like really Young Victoria. Y- young, young Queen Victoria. Victoria, um, babies, they'll oppress you with colonialism. Uh, Doctor Doolittle has moved into his Xanadu-like uh, palatial estate with a bunch of animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the head of the film, he's already been out of practice for a long time because he lost his beloved and moved in. Moved into isolation. Yeah, this is, if memory serves, this uh, is based off of one of the Dr. Doolittle books, but not the first one. So yeah. they crammed in a little extra exposition that f- feels like it probably was yeah. supposed to be really important, but they kind of throw yeah. it out there. He yeah, was married, yeah, but, uh, she disappeared, and since then he's been locked away mm-hmm. in his palatial uh, animal reserve and hasn't been talking to anyone human for years. Yeah, he's just been living with his animals. Uh a young boy comes in with an injured squirrel. The young boy quickly, who has unfortunately was born without a personality, and uh, <laughs> he uh, he has an injured squirrel, and he quickly becomes Doctor Doolittle's ward through a, a whirly gig of, uh, of happenstance. Uh, a young woman is also there to call him to Queen Victoria's court because she's very sick. 
He says that the only cure for her is magic cure-all berries on a lost island somewhere, so I have to take my animals and go on a grand adventure. And that's the plot of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that actually mm. she's not just sick. Someone poisoned her. So the bad yeah, guy sends... My, Michael Sheen, uh, who is, is the doctor who's been poisoning her, and Jim Broadbent is in it because, of course, he'll, yeah. he'll step in front of whatever camera that's rolling. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're off. They're chasing uh, him, trying to prevent yeah. them from getting the cure. Uh, for the queen would have been real easy if you just kill them and uh, they try well, it's, kind it's, of a couple of times it's, it's a kid movie I can understand why they wouldn't kill them but then there's a, a scene later on where they there, there's a, there's, here's the thing here's they, the, they introduce a plot hole when they don't have to oh it's a huge plot hole but yeah. like here's the thing with like trying to kill people in a kids movie no like, oh, it's a kids movie it's okay if they try they just have to fail mm. and of course you want them to try like Something that's like a little less threatening than like, you know, a saw death trap or something. But you know, it's okay if they're like. And then there's like an evil assassin with like a really stupid looking like elephant gun or something like that. But every time he points a gun like, at them, like a bird hits the gun or something, mm-hmm. and it hits something in the sky, and then a signpost falls it's on like, it. It's like wacky. My, my, Michael Palin's assassination attempts in a fish called Wanda. Oh, the ultimate f- fumbled assassination attempt. Still brilliant. D- th- those are so so hilarious. So goddamn. Funny. If, if you don't like violence to dogs, maybe don't watch it. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's actually, actually Vishkal One is pretty harsh to animals in general. Oh, absolutely! It's, it's very yeah. broadly portrayed, mm. but like, yeah, it's a little upsetting still, if you're really into fish. Still freaking hilarious. Um, um, but uh, <coughs> this film is a bloody mess. Uh, it's it, it's shot in, and edited in such a way that you can tell they're trying to salvage something from what was no doubt an even larger fiasco. Yeah, uh, they probably shot a lot more, and they're shaving off a lot here and there so that. The scenes don't really fit together in any kind of poetic way. There's a scene where they are on a ship, and they just have to cut to the interior of a city so we don't see them landing, we don't see them disembarking. Mm. They're just all of a sudden on like a spy mission wearing different clothes, and you can tell that there were a bunch of scenes that they just kind of had to cut out because yeah. they either didn't work or maybe well, it was no, for pacing. Th- what happens is oftentimes when you add like ADR to a movie, you add like a line of dialogue just mm. to, to smooth over the fact that this doesn't cut together well, or we had to cut a really short scene that explained what was happening, mm. but it served no other function, so we really didn't need it we can just throw it away in a line of dialogue uh the old the oldest version of this is uh you know you see a car like driving up to a house mm-hmm. and a character says well here we are at my house let's go take a look at our plans for world domination or whatever mm-hmm. that's because the scene was missing or because yeah. they didn't think out the transition so what they do here is they land on this island and they need to steal a book with a map in it so what would normally happen is they just land on the island and then we just cut to them like sneaking into the castle. But they're wearing such weird garish outfits that were clearly supposed to be important for other stuff mm. that they can't not explain that. So they have to add so much ADR to mm. just make that transition even stupider and more complicated to explain why they're wearing that mm. and what we might have happened that we missed but we actually didn't put that in the movie we probably shot it but anyway for whatever reason we're just going to continue the rest of this scene when they're wearing stupid shit yeah the um the film was directed by Stephen is it Gann or Gag Gagan. I've heard Gagan, Gagan, but I could be wrong. Stephen Gagan, who did Syriana, he wrote like co-wrote Traffic. He, yeah. He's done some pretty uh, like hard-edged he prestige won an pictures. Award for traffic, yeah. didn't he? And um, 
for writing. Maybe yeah, he, he, did, yeah. He, wrote, he wrote Traffic Academy and he got award, Academy Award yeah. screenwriter. Uh, yeah. Winning screenwriter. Nominated for Syriana as well. And uh, this was reportedly a very troubled production. Uh, they tested it out and it didn't work well, so they hired the director of Battle Los Angeles and the Ninja Turtles movie to do reshoots. Oh, Dave, uh, Dave Green. Not Dave Green. Oh, the um, other one. Um, oh, it wasn't Leonetti. Who did um, the... Jonathan Liebsman is his Jonathan name. Liebsman. Yeah. Who, I'm sorry, is not the person you get to fix things. Yeah, did, uh, you get him also, to break stuff. He also did Wrath of the Titans and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. and uh, you know, Of those, Wrath of the Titans is the best, and that's not and, saying much. And even much. Wrath of the Titans is, isn't really a stellar It's, it's only good because it came after Clash. And Clash, and Clash of the Titans was so bad. Clash, by the way, speaking of worst movies of the decade, mm. that would have been on the list. Yeah, that movie is junk. Probably so. That's um, another one where you can tell that they were just fighting to save that and, thing in post. Now, I understand that this is actually really common. They they do reshoots a lot. Uh, yeah. This was a really long reshooting schedule. It was like nearly a month of reshoots. So well, this got go, pushed back really far. It was pushed too, back yeah. really far. And often you can't tell. Or maybe you can yeah. tell a little bit, but it doesn't really matter in the... In, the whole fabric of the film. Yeah, it's like, okay, they, they reshot something, they need to do some There's a clumsy moment or, uh, here or there, maybe, they, they like, dubbed in a few lines of dialogue. Someone's hair kind of doesn't obvious. quite look right in one scene, but, yeah. like, usually, these are professionals. Yeah. Even, like, if any expensive movie like this, people are doing their job, they're paid to do their job. Mm. It's not usually this obvious that a movie yeah, was clearly a mess. If, if, you can tell just like on a scene by scene basis that things are just going wrong in front of your eyes. That's a really bad sign. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't help that this thing is not at all buoyed by Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, you'd He's think he would be carrying the whole film. You'd think he would be able to bring in like a kind of winking charm or affability like he does to Iron Man or I would say to a lesser extent Sherlock Holmes, but a lot of people like those movies. He, uh, he's, he, um, if they work, they work because him and Jude Law are good in them. Yeah. 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 I, they, they play off each other really well. They have a good chemistry. Like, I, I think Jude Law is perfect as the straight man in yeah. those. Uh, here, I, I'm not exactly sure what he's doing. He is... Uh, he affects this really unconvincing Welsh accent, mm. which is really hard to place for a long time, and he's also decided to kind of lower his voice into this kind of yeah. muttering growl. And maybe the idea was he's like a little bit more animal now because he's spoke, spoken to animals so yeah, long. Yeah, that was my thought is maybe his accent has changed because he's learned so many languages. But but it's it's not grunting and growling in this demonstrative sort of way. It's just sort of under-speaking his line so you can't really understand him. So when he stops to say something of kind of import, he just sort of speeds through it and grunts through it as if he doesn't want to be there. I mean, that is that is kind of the death knell for this movie that was already a big mess based on a kind of a bad idea. Uh, for me, my theory about this mm -hmm. is, and by the way, I have a lot of respect for Robert Downey Jr. He's done some amazing work in some amazing movies and some amazing work in some really bad movies. Mm -hmm. I like him as an actor. He's not infallible as an actor. And I think one of the things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe did was it convinced the world that Robert Downey Jr. can carry anything, and he mm -hmm. can't. When you look at the movies that he buoyed, mm -hmm. to borrow your word, in the MCU, he wasn't carrying them alone. Iron Man, he had a great supporting cast in Iron Man. He had people yeah. to play off of. Jeff Bridges, Gwyneth Paltrow, Terrence Howard. Um, oh, God, I forgot the guy who played Jensen. But, like, all good actors, really mm -hmm. good actors to, to have sparkling dialogue with and to improvise with and you see that throughout the entire MCU. They say what you will about those movies. They're very well cast. Mm. Um... Here, who's he got? 
He's got, you said yourself, a child who was born with no personality. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the young actor is fine and just was in a shitty movie. Yeah. But the character has brings nothing to the table. But both the young the young man and the young woman are both. Oh, totally she's unwritten. written off immediately. Yeah. She clearly demonstrates more personality than the boy, but she's just forced to stay home. Yeah. It's, it's, I call it Rose Tico syndrome. Like, come on. <laughs> uh, but uh, but the rest of the movie, who's he interacting with? CGI animals whose voices were added in after the fact. He's not actually having dialogue, mm-hmm. at least not. You know, in the original production, maybe in some post, uh, with the dynamite and, 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 cast Emma of Emma Thompson and Octavia Sp- Spencer and, and Kumail Nanjiani. And, and these are all John like. John Senna is in there. Oh, Jason Mansukas plays a dragonfly. These are all funny, capable actors who could bring a lot to it, but Robert Downey Jr. doesn't have them to play off of. So he's just got to leave space for them to be funny in post. Mm. That's not a great way to do a movie. There is one mildly charming scene where uh, Doctor Doolittle has been has become unkempt. He's unshaven. He's got a long beard and long hair. He just looks like a wild man. Yeah. And uh, he gets on a ship, and the parrot played by Emma Thompson has to give him a haircut. And there's a great oh. bit where he kind of like leans back, and the parrot's kind of like. Trimming he's off all of his hair with, with, her beak. with her beak, and that, and he's just sort of sitting there, kind of matter of factly. And there's that one moment, it's like, oh, that that's kind of sweet. I actually uh, like the bit. I actually like the bit early on when, after trying to kick the kid out of his house, mm-hmm. he realizes the kid has an injured squirrel, and he's actually going to do surgery on the squirrel. And all of the animals are like his team, mm-hmm. his crackerjack team, like in House MD, and. This seeing them actually in their element is actually way better than this kind of half-assed nautical journey they end up going on. I think I, <laughs> I see why they wanted to do a different Doctor Doolittle story because it's something that hadn't been told before. There are some uh, potentially interesting ideas for set pieces that they could play with. But Doctor Doolittle is a doctor. I don't necessarily want to see him break into a castle. I want to see him do doctor stuff. Yeah. And doing doctor stuff with animals as your team for one scene that was cute. The duck keeps bringing him celery whenever he asks for something real. Well, it's like bring me some forceps. Here you go. No, that that's celery. Yeah. Okay. Here you <laughs> how about, go. How about no? That's still the celery. Okay. Yeah. Here you go. What about this? That's a radish. What about this? Different piece of celery. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. It's it's a simple, silly little joke, mm. but it's more entertaining than this yeah. huge big set piece where he like convinces a whale to like drag their ship kind of fast. The, the, uh, you know, at least he was using his superpowers the way he would. True, but for whatever reason, that scene just didn't have a lot of energy to yeah, it. Like you true. know, it's like that's one little uh, throwaway joke with a duck is better. Mm. Uh, you can tell that that the, the makers of this film are kind of shooting for a Tim Burton vibe because it's really kind of uh, like fanciful, yeah. and especially with the production design, it's really over designed. It really looks really lavish. Uh, the production design is actually pretty good. Yeah. I like I like the color it's and the com- complexity of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish they you know, had filmed it a little differently, but you know whatever. Yeah. Well, we talked and, about uh, uh, there was a there's an anecdote you've already told mm-hmm. uh, elsewhere about me thinking about the score. Yeah, yeah, we. Uh, you leaned over at one point, like I said, I think we had sort of, we're coming to the same conclusion, but you leaned over and said, what this needs is like an early 90s Danny Elfman score, like something from a Tim Burton movie, something yeah. to add a little bit of quirk to this yeah. quirky story. A little bit of magic. Yeah. And, and then we were very surprised when the closing credits rolled and we found out Danny Elfman actually did the score Actually for did do the score. <laughs> like, ooh. And, and, and my response is, Danny Elfman, you continue to disappoint me. Uh, he... he uh, 
made his name with a certain sound, uh, a certain kind of music, mostly for Tim Burton films. What was the last good Danny Elfman score? Uh, yeah, it, it's got to be before Hulk. But um, I'm going to look it up. Yeah, it, uh, during the production of Hulk, uh, Ang Lee said, "I need you to be uh, a good composer, but I don't want you to do usual Danny Elfman stuff." And I think that sort of freed up Danny Elfman to do. Um, what in his mind was a, a big sort of artistic evolution into being a much more versatile composer, being able to write music for all different kinds of movies and not just sort of stick with the, quote, Danny Elfman sound. Problem is, we like the Danny Elfman sound. That's kind of why we went to him. Yeah, he had and a now, good uh, sound. Like, and, you think about a lot he's of the... writing uh, these scores, even for, like, big movies. Like, he did one of the Avengers movies. He did the Justice League movie. He did the Fifty Shades um, movies. Yeah, did the, and there's nothing really distinctive about many of his scores. He did a score for one of the Errol Moore documentaries, and all he was doing was imitating Philip Glass, which, you know, fine, that's a good Philip Glass imitation, but can you be more Danny Elfman? We like that sound, and especially when you're doing this sort of, like, fanciful kid's Talking animal adventure. I, th- I, th- I think I have to go back. I'm looking at his like filmography right here. Mm. By the way, it's full of stuff where you're like, Danny Elfman did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like Danny Elfman did Real Steel. What or Promised Land? But I think the furthest back, oh, he's, like he's worked with Gus Van Sant. I know, I know, movie. but like he's not necessarily his best work. But, but I think you'd have to go back as far as Coraline to find like a really interesting yeah, story. I guess so yeah. that's over ten years ago now. And like mm. he's competent. I'm not saying he doesn't know how to score a movie, but he doesn't. A lot. There's different schools of thought on how like scoring should be in a movie. Yeah, you should either hear or it should get out of the way. Yeah, a lot of people think it should get out of the way. I think that to some extent that can be true, and you definitely don't want a score to overpower every scene. Mm. But when you think about the best scores, the scores that inspire you or whatever, they make an impact. They tell the story. They mm. add inflection yeah. and tone to the storytelling. Danny Elfman was really good about that and mm. especially good about making things feel you know, eccentric and magical. I, I think he actually did a pretty good job with Justice League. Uh, he was he yeah. did the, Because, first of all, he got to use his Batman theme again. <laughs> no, that was fun. Uh, there, there was a bit where that the Ben fun. Affleck Batman showed up and we got to hear the old uh, film from the, the from the Tim Burton film theme. Yeah, I'll give you and that. he was also uh, permitted to use the John Williams Superman score. So he got to sort of play those two themes off of each other in a few scenes. And I think, I mean, it's not the, the most revolutionary thing, but at least no, it's, it's fun fine. to listen to. It's fine. Um, there's a scene, there's a, there's, um, I want to use Dr. Doolittle or Doolittle mm. uh, to talk about uh, something that I think is used so often people don't know what it means anymore. And that's mm. the idea of a plot hole. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. A plot hole is not just something that doesn't really make sense. Because if you overanalyze even the best story, something doesn't make sense. Something mm-hmm. is based on coincidence. Something is contrived. Something is, well, we didn't really think of that. A plot hole is when if any character in the movie pointed this out, the movie would be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's what it's got to be. It's got to be, it's got to just kill the movie. And once you see it, you can't unsee it, and like the whole thing just collapses into a vortex, like a hole. Mm-hmm. Boy, does Doolittle have one, because there's a part in the movie where, again, they got to get this map, and the map will lead them to the magic tree. Mm-hmm. The bad guy, Martin Sheen, wants to prevent them from getting to the magic tree because he's trying to kill the queen with poison. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he has a, this big cartoonish warship and he's yeah. firing cannons at he's them. Chasing yeah. them. He's chasing them down. And there's this part in the movie, and this is halfway through the movie, but I don't think you really care. I'm just going to say it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Martin Sheen gets the map. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, standard, Mike, Mike, Michael Sheen. Sorry, Michael Sheen. I always do that. <laughs> Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen gets the map. It, it's a standard movie reversal. It's not even a twist. Um... All he has to do 
to win the movie is, is burn the map. Burn the map. Tear it up. Throw it away. Instead, he takes the map and goes to find the tree. Why? Literally no reason. He is and, not the only, and the he's only not reason, given motivation. No, nope. he doesn't even say like when they end up like he's the villain guy and they end up in the same location is like and now I can get those berries. Why? You didn't want them before. Uh huh. You're not like he's a little obsessed with Doctor Doolittle, but mm-hmm. they never clarify that he's trying to do something Doctor Doolittle couldn't do or something or trying to beat him to it. It's just the only way that they could contrive to get Dr. Doolittle on that island after he lost the map is to follow someone else there. But the only other person who has the map has no motive for going. And what's weird is that actually there was a perfectly good reason to get him to that island. Because the map that he stole was in the possession of a guy who cherished that book. He could just say, I've read that book so many times, I can draw you that map. (laughs) Then the movie compresses! And it's actually kind of a moment, and it actually rewards you for paying attention. But it's a huge, (sighs) stupid-ass plot hole. It's just not really well-written. The comedy doesn't really land, uh, because they... I'm not sure if they're going for, like, a a whimsical adventure story or something a little bit crasser. Uh, Tell them about the dragon. There's dragon... Yeah, they, they made a dragon. It's a magical dragon. The yeah. film climaxes. This is the climax of the film, when uh, Doctor Doolittle, an animal doctor, learns to speak dragon and learns to help the dragon. Turns out there's a bunch of armor and stuff stuck in the dragon's butthole. Like you do. I'm not kidding. That's the plot of the movie. Yeah. And he has to like reach in the dragon's butt and pull out, pull stuff out, and get farted on. You're welcome. It's it's dragon fart, and and he pulls a bagpipe out of the dragon's butt. One hundred and seventy-five million dollars. So, Would, look, Robert Downey Jr., I'm sure you trust your agent. <laughs> Maybe you've worked with your agent for a really long time and they're a really close friend at this uh-huh. point, but... Maybe hire a second agent. Or, I'm going to throw this out right now, Robert Downey Jr., mm. if your agent told you don't do this and you, and you said this is a passion project of mine, from now on, listen to your agent. Listen, yeah, listen like, to your someone, agent. Someone isn't listening to someone, mm. and this this was clearly, like, from top down, like, mm. clearly a mistake. Yeah. Uh, it, this, I, this is just ill-advised, was uh, this, not entertaining. This was Cats was your pick for the worst in the last year. Yeah. If Doolittle had come out last year, like it was originally supposed to, mm. would it have been worse than Cats? No. Okay. No, no. This is not worse than Cats. Um, All right. That's saying because, something. Because Doolittle, you can at least see the spark of a good idea. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I, I suppose, I mean, making this sort of like whimsical, flatulent animal comedy for that much money is a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Cats was just, <laughs> just ridiculous from the start. Well, I would argue that Cats is more entertaining than Doolittle. Ergo, well, Doolittle is worse. Well, and Doolittle is just, it, in, it's bad in that it's incompetent. Yeah. Which is frustrating Cats for a movie co- of this uh, production. It, the CG in Cats is incompetent, but mm. clearly otherwise they did what they set out to do. Yeah. That was a mistake to want to do that, mm. but they did it, and it was well, consistent. Like, they clearly had a vision. It was start, blurry start, vision. Starting with a horrid idea and pushing it all the way, I would yeah. say, usually creates, yes, a much more entertaining, but usually a far worse film well, we'll than, than a film that is just sort of messed up along the way. All right. Uh, where do you want to go from here? Um, let's do... Let's do Just Mercy. All right. Big about face. Yeah. Uh, um, this is a movie that had a very, 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 very short, very small run in mm-hmm. December uh, for Oscar qualifications. Obviously, it didn't pan out. 
Mm. Uh, and then it got a wider release at the beginning of January, and it is the latest film from the director of Short Term 12, mm. uh, and it stars Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson, mm. seeing a uh, pattern here, and Jamie Foxx. And it's a true story. It's the true story of a lawyer named Brian Stevenson, who uh, worked on a case in, who in uh, which began in 1986, and I think was... Like pending for twenty years, it took a long, long time. Yeah, like a lot, uh, of, like a lot of legal cases uh, do. A, yeah. a, a black man named Walter McMillan, uh, played by Jamie Foxx in the movie, was accused—no proof—but was accused of murdering a white woman in Alabama, which put him directly on death row. Uh, he stayed on death row for a long time. He was completely destitute and resigned to his fate because of uh, just the systemic racism in Alabama. Yeah, he had no illusions um, that he would actually mm-hmm. like be heard. Yeah, um, uh, and indeed, and indeed, you, the simple facts of the case mean it probably should never have gone to trial. There's mm-hmm. dozens of eyewitnesses that, that saw put, him somewhere put, else put when him, the murder yeah. took place, and there's one eyewitness who is completely untrustworthy mm. Con- not just a convicted felon but initially said he didn't see him and then months later under duress said he did mm-hmm. one guy versus dozens of witnesses mm. what's the difference that one guy is a white, white guy yeah yeah, um, yeah. He's played by and he's played by Tim Blake Nelson and he, I think he has sort of the meatiest role in this film yeah uh, which is a bizarre thing to say because Jamie Foxx plays a guy who is uh fighting to find hope in this system that he has already sort of resigned to be completely hopeless. Yep. Uh, Michael B. Jordan has the uh, this kind of noble character that uh, that is trying to fight through all these horrendous things and sort of point out how weighted and wrong the death penalty is. It's a big anti-death penalty movie. Yep. And indeed, there's a, a long section in the middle where we get to witness in... An, in an extended sequence, somebody being executed by the state. Uh, the actual um, death itself is sort of tastefully off screen. We see people's faces. Yeah, like yeah, um, we don't like. It's not like it's a not close ghoulish, up, yeah. but like it, it. The the impact is there. It's clearly mm. harsh. It's 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 yeah. just as harsh as something in Dead Man Walking. It's harsh as uh, that. Uh, Monsters Ball, you know, other films that are about the death penalty. But there's a big difference, I think, between those films mm-hmm. and uh, Just Mercy, which is a film I more or less like. Uh, but Just Mercy is so compassionate and so sort of measured and thoughtful throughout mm. that even its biggest dramatic moments it seem like they're underplayed. Well, it, it all seems really subdued, which yeah. is a, weir- a weird thing, to, which is why I said you know Tim Blake Nelson kind of has the showy role, because uh, Michael B. Jordan plays Brian Stevenson as being uh, so noble that he doesn't really get to modulate that much. His character seems kind of flat. And I know Michael B. Jordan is capable of so much more. He's, oh, he's, an, incre- he's an incredible actor. He's one but, of the best actors of his generation, but, if you uh, ask me. But he's, I, I feel like he was misdirected here. Mm-hmm. Where he was asked to sort of be so confident all the time mm-hmm. that we didn't really get a sense of what his struggle was, and I feel the same way about Jamie Fox. I feel like oh. Jamie Fox was at the same note throughout the entire film. I agree. They're both clearly these are like, and, and it's interesting. And again, and, Jamie Fox also a very good actor. Yeah, there's. I actually was thinking when I was watching this movie, I was thinking mm-hmm. about a movie we reviewed uh, in like November uh, mm-hmm. called Dark Waters. Yeah, it was it December? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever. It was, uh, but it was uh, it was a new legal movie mm-hmm. uh, starring Mark Ruffalo, directed and, by Todd Haynes. Yeah, and, and it was about uh, the case against a, a chemical company. 
Uh, and du- DuPont, in, yeah, DuPont. And yeah. I didn't remember off the top of my head, but uh, basically, uh, when they invented Teflon, they completely lied to people about the safety risks of it and how insanely unhealthy and dangerous it is to have in your house. Mm. Um, that movie was, in many respects, sort of structured like a conventional legal thriller along the lines of like the pelican brief but with like no explosions or assassins like that but that level of like Mm. can we get him like that kind of drama Mm. that's a suspense that we expect from sort of a john grisham-esque kind of thriller um but todd haynes sort of just let that play out Mm. kind of naturally and just had it be about uh one guy going up against an extremely fucked up system and how kind of helpless you feel and i feel like just mercy is going for a similar approach, but I'm not getting from this movie oh. the kind <laughs> of emotional response from the filmmakers that I'm supposed to get. Yeah, well, I I, I disagree with you on Dark Waters. I think um, a big part of that movie, Todd Haynes really kind of drains a lot of color and interest out of the visuals. Yeah. Everything's like sort of gray and blocky in that movie, yeah. and I think a big point of that movie is when you're trying to take legal action against this big, gigantic, corrupt system that they defeat you just by waiting you out, by grinding you down. It's not right. like a decisive blow. And I think They can just outlast you, and so I, they do. And I and, see a parallel there with yeah. the systemic racism that they yeah. ran into, where it doesn't really matter how right well, you are, the, racism just trumps all. Yeah. And, and, in the system, obviously not. It, in the system, well, but they set up a few melodramatic things, like there's some like evil people who are like trying to manipulate the system, and they're kind of like rubbing their hands and scheming, and you're supposed to boo and hiss when they appear on screen. So there's this kind of melodramatic element to Just Mercy. But at the same time, we're also trying to tell the story of the grind, and I feel like it's not balancing those two things very well. That's fair. There's definitely a way to do that. You can have the melodrama and the grind, but I feel like it needs to be one or the other, and it's just not hitting either really hard. I I think I connected to this film's... um sense of determination. Mm. You know, you talk about how long the court case lasted and how sort of uh, impenetrable the system is. And I think the idea, and I picked up on this, I do think it might have been a miscalculation, though, of Michael B. Jordan's character was that he was so determined mm-hmm. and so unwavering that none of those things prevented him from winning the case when ordinarily they would have. It just would have mm. been too overwhelming. You know, the obligatory scene of the white cops pulling him over... Yeah, vaguely the, the, threatening him the and then saying you got a humiliating like, scene where he's strip searched yeah, yeah for like no good reason mm. and they admit it but like these are things that are supposed to deter him and the fact that he is never deterred not for a moment is not really satisfying dramatically we <laughs> want to see him like sort of overcome mm. worry or fear but I think it's that they're going for something that's a little bit more inspirational but it's so inspirational that it actually stops being inspirational because at no point does it feel like it wasn't gonna be. Yeah. And the only thing we have well, is that no, bit it's... in the middle where it's really, really tragic and we see the system mm. fail someone, but it's, it's, we also know they probably wouldn't make a movie about this if Jamie Foxx just dies at the end. It, it, it is a true story, but yeah, a, a little bit of suspense would have been nice. Yeah, you want, you want especially in a movie where it's a foregone conclusion because it is a true story, mm-hmm. you know where it's gonna go, but you have to feel in the middle of it like you don't know how it could possibly get there. Mm-hmm. That's the trick. Yeah. When you're doing, like, it's uh, Lincoln's a good example of this, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, where, mm-hmm. listen, we know what Lincoln accomplished. He did, you know, get rid of slavery mm-hmm. in, in America, at least, you know, by letter of the law. See uh, Ava DuVernay's 13th, please. <laughs> um, 
But so we know he accomplished it, and a lot of history books just sort of like like the kids' history books. Is, and then he did that, and everyone's yeah. like, "Great!" But when you <laughs> when you watch the movie and you or you read the book, it's based on it, and you realize that just like just how Herculean an effort that was, and how at every single turn it looked like that would be impossible. Mm-hmm. That's the trick, and that's some that's that's what you have to do with the based on a true story is you got to make a foregone conclusion seem. Suspect and impossible, mm-hmm. and Just Mercy doesn't really do that. I still kind of like it, and I do think it's made with quality and sensitivity. But it just it never calls attention to itself in a way that but serves you, the story you, you or you even makes a big to, impact. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you want a little melodrama here. A guy's on death row for God's sake. <laughs> like, juice it up a smidge, yeah, no, you know, like. I, I want to also clarify that all of this is not to say that this is not a film with a worthy message. Oh, yeah. Uh, the message is actually quite worthy, and it actually has a politic that I very strongly agree with. Right. Um, but, yeah, when I'm, I'm coming down to the actual filmmaking, yeah. then I, I'm saying that it's it's kind of lagging a little I, bit. I know some people are frustrated by how much uh, critics, and even we, mm. uh, discuss uh, political messaging and sociological themes uh, in movies. By the way, that's not new. Uh, yeah. But uh, just because we approve of a message doesn't mean the movie's good, or vice versa. Mm. And this is an example where I think the movie is like kind of tops out at just a little above mediocre. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like yeah. you're not a fan. Not a, not a big fan. Okay, yeah. all right, fair enough. Uh, well, let's move on. All right, I yeah, I'll let you choose the next one. Okay, because uh, well, <laughs> uh, we, we got a whole slew. Well, of let's listen. There's a bunch of films. Actually, listen. We're just going to do the obvious segue here. Let's mm. talk about another courtroom movie. Uh, right. Tyler Perry's Fall from Grace. <laughs> this was a straight to Netflix film. Uh, t- I was thinking about it, and Tyler Perry. I haven't seen all of his films. Actually, I haven't seen any of the Medea films, which is, I know is a big hole in my modern film education. Even I've only seen a few. Yeah. Um, but Tyler Perry, as far as I've experienced, writes films almost exclusively about women and uh, mm-hmm. sort of the the experience that women have at the hands of shiftless men. That's Frequently, that's frequently. He's it, frequently it's, written about. That's it. de- definitely um, the theme of Temptation: Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, which mm-hmm. is awful. Uh, his it was breakout the theme of movie, Acrimony, which was better. Well, his breakout uh, movie, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, was mm-hmm. very specifically about that. Yeah, and um, and Medea is in that, but she's actually that's such a weird movie because Medea is this larger than life character, and she's a supporting player. Yeah, it's yeah. really weird. It's just, it's just actually like really intense. I don't think it's particularly good, but it's this is really intense melodrama. Which I don't think Taylor Perry directed that one. I think he just wrote it. Mm. Uh, Darren McLovin is this really intense melodrama about a woman who like is married to a rich guy. He cheats on her. He kicks her to the curb, and then she starts dating again. But then halfway through the movie, it turns into this weird psychodrama. Whatever happened to Baby Jane kind of thing. <laughs> but also, mm-hmm. in the midst of all that intensity, Tyler Perry is in drag, doing funny stuff. Mm-hmm. But for like three scenes, yeah, a weird tone. I, I kind of <laughs> admire that movie just because mm. it is not obeying conventional rules of storytelling yeah. and tone. It's very strange. <laughs> um, but this is yeah, this is part of his uh, you know more melodramatic uh, uh, thriller phase, uh, much like t- uh, t- Temptation, mm. uh, which is. Sadly, a very funny film. I don't think he intended yeah, it to it's, be. It's very funny. Oh, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very it's over hilarious the top. because it's it's bad. But yeah, this one along with Acrimony, um, uh, kind of they all are are of a piece. Uh, in this film, uh, Crystal I didn't see Fo- Acrimony. I can't uh, okay, see it uh, Crystal Fox plays the titular Grace, who uh, yeah. who is 
a woman in her f- or like early fifties mm. who uh, catches the uh, eye of he's, I think he's a young artist. Yeah, he's a photographer. He's a younger he's photographer. photographer yeah, that's yeah. right, and and he's like. A, a minor star in the art world. He has a few uh, shows here and there, which actually becomes a plot hole later on. Like that he's a, a, recogni- plot that he's a recognizable hole. celebrity is kind of yeah. forgotten about uh, later on. But um, it it turns out that they start uh, having sort of a regard for one another, and he starts to sort of wine starts, and diner. Uh, yeah, wine and diner beca- becomes in- uh, increasingly and aggressively amorous. And she has kind of had it with dating. She figured that part of her life was past her. She had a messy divorce. Mm -hmm. She she talks uh, like half of her dialogue Mm -hmm. in this movie. And by the way, the movie is mostly told like in flashback and she's talking to her lawyer Mm -hmm. about why... At the beginning of the movie, she's killed her husband, who is this young man. Mm -hmm. And uh, she just wants a plea deal. Mm -hmm. She's like, fuck it, I don't care. I just, I did it. I, I I want it over with... I hate everything, and I'm just done. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lawyer's like, cool, I guess. And then halfway through the movie, the lawyer's just like, well, maybe we should fight it. Um, but uh, half of this woman's dialogue, Grace, is about how she felt old. Yeah. Like, a lot of it. And I understand that as, like, a theme to explore, is sort of the fear of aging, uh, the concern that one's love life may be over because you're getting older and you mm-hmm. feel maybe you're less attractive. This is These are sympathetic emotions. Yeah. It sounds like she's monomaniacal about it. Uh, well, like, it sounds like she has no other interests except it's, her own aging. It's the it's the brown rice and vegetable syndrome. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Showgirls, mm. uh, excellent film, excellently bad film. Uh, there's a, a few lines of dialogue that uh, the screenwriter Joe Esterhaus wrote into that movie about how dancers eat brown rice and vegetables, and that's like the one fact he knew. So I kind of had to repeat it over and over again. <laughs> and I feel like Tyler Perry like had no other things to sort of flesh out his character. Yeah. So he had her repeat, yeah, the sim- similar dialogue throughout the length of the movie. Yeah. No matter her scenario at the beginning or in the flashback at the beginning of the flashback, she's uh, worried about how she's getting old, and then in flash forward to the present and she's in prison she's still saying the same thing no i and i just want to say i understand that people's like image of themselves don't always match mm-hmm. their actual image but she keeps talking about how she's old she looks great yeah she looks really great like i don't know if like that was the point but it doesn't really sell um so the plot of the movie is she yeah she she allegedly killed her husband and uh, our young hero, uh, Jazz, uh, played by Brescia Webb, uh, she's she's uh, she's completely disrespected by her law firm mm-hmm. because all she ever does is plead bargain. Yeah, she never she's never gone to court, and like even her boss, played by Tyler Perry, just has no respect for her whatsoever. You are not a real lawyer. So he says, listen, she wants a plea bargain. You're a plea bargain person. Finally something you're good at. They hate her so much. (laughs) Then she just goes in there, and then she starts hearing the lady's story, and she starts thinking, well, maybe she didn't do it. And then she's constantly talking about how she'd really rather quit than do this, but Mm -hmm. then she's kind of tempted to do the right thing. ah, (laughs) Which, by the way, not a great foundation for a protagonist <laughs> is I'd really rather not be doing this and also I'm really incompetent at my mm. job. When we finally get to the trial, the shit she does in the trial is embarrassing. 
embarrassing. And I'm glad yeah. at the very well, least the, the screenplay ev- acknowledges some of it. Everybody calls her out on it. It's like, yeah. I want to do this thing. That's not how law works. You can't do that. That's and, not and, a... Th- we don't... We can't just call a witness and, and Tyler, in the middle of your closing yeah. testimony. And, and Tyler Perry, who is you know, he is in the movie, he's the director, he calls her aside. like, yeah, you're not doing that right. That's not a thing. Yeah, yeah you just completely ruined this whole lawyer thing. Mm. By the time the movie ends... Uh, and well, there's a, there, there are twists and turns, and it's not really there, worth ruining them. There are twists and turns. We I, I do have Most to acknowledge of them are really that, predictable. That, that Felicia Rashad is in the movie, and she has the like some of the strongest big dick energy I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Because she sells the hell out of this thing. Felicia Rashad is making the most yeah, of the she, movie. She she's, is awesome. She's in this playing film. her role. Uh, but Felicia Rashad, yeah, she she's she's got a couple of big scenes. Mm. But like by the end of the movie, this is one of those movies where when the movie is over, you realize that the movie acted like the protagonist did something, but actually the protagonist did nothing. <laughs> the actual protagonist had nothing to do with the actual resolution of the plot. Oh, she does. She is, She happened to be she, there. She happened to be in the right spot so she could pick up a piece of information and figure something out. On but the other like, hand, if she hadn't showed up, I'm just going to say this, there's a lady who was on her way to do something mm-hmm. and if Who's, our hero hadn't uh, stopped her, she probably would have and the movie would have ended the same way. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. It, oh, that's right. She was just on her way to, yeah! to, to tell the authorities. Yeah. Oh, the this problem. would not have been, the whole movie doesn't this completely falls apart like a flan in a cupboard. It's such a yeah, and the the idea that uh, that that um, our our main characters. Uh, Paramore was a celebrity is mm. kind of forgotten about. Yeah, and it, once you start thinking mm. about it, once like the whole story mm. unfolds, you realize that makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, this movie. I'm actually going to give it some credit for this. A lot of people are making fun of it mm. for this. Uh, this movie was shot in five days. Oh, good for them! It doesn't yeah. look like it. It actually doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you can tell it's like shot on a on a speedy thing. Mm. But if you told me five days, I'd be like, you know, there's a lot of locations in this. Yeah, That's actually like a t- a tricky production for there's five days. There's a lot days. of locations. I, th- yeah. I think all the actors do their job pretty well. They're okay. um, Some more than others, but you know, yeah, like they'll take any of these cast members over uh, what whatever Robert Downey Jr.'s doing. I mean, do yeah, I'll grant you that. Like, I'd hire anyone in this movie again. Mm. Like, they're all they all do okay work, but like, yeah, the dialogue is crap a lot of the time, but they're doing their best. Mm. Um, yeah, I would not have assumed this was done in five days. I would have thought, like, two weeks. Mm. You know, TV movie schedule. You know, we're burning through it, but, like, five days is quick. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have been sort of making fun of it for that, but I'm actually mildly impressed. That's hard to do, especially on this day and age, mm. on a film of this uh, ambition. Um, but it the plot is laughably constructed. Like, it does not function at it, all. It has the it's, same kind of thriller plot that I think I've seen dozens and dozens of times mm-hmm. uh, that isn't really done so much anymore. But yeah, it's, it's not really well thought out. It's not a, a complicated plot movie. Uh, and e- even the characters aren't terribly complex, mm-hmm. as as is the want of Tyler Perry. He doesn't really write terribly nuanced characters. It's usually up to his actors. Mm-hmm. Like, the the lead character of Acrimony is played by Taraji P. Henson, and she really cracks it out in that one. She's, she's, fun, great. she's great, but... Um, what I find interesting I, about Tyler Perry's work in this mold uh-huh. is how... Like, he's... He never quite has, like, the gravitas, but, like, I feel like his main inspiration either directly or indirectly, like he might be inspired by people who were inspired by, or mm. maybe he's a big fan, I don't know. I feel like he's going for Douglas Sirk here. 
in terms of that level mm-hmm. of, of 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 you know melodrama in suburbia mm. and I, I could see it you know this, this sort of thing the intense the, the, the emotion- version of this yeah, sort of thing yeah exactly the intense emotional dynamic of it but then like halfway through he wants to be William Castle <laughs> and just like do something like straitjacket or something and again a part of me admires that I wish he had like. I think pushed you know, it harder. I wish he he'd should, gone crazier with this because, like, Temptation re- is crazy. Re- you should remake Homicidal with Felicia Rashad. Please, that would be awesome. Like, um, that would be cool. I would love to see that. But like, I just feel like mm. I feel frustrated that, given how run and gun this was, I would have loved to have seen him go full Roger Corman, way more exploitative. You keep having the same beats and everything, but just like go nuts. I <laughs> want like I want like there's so much you could have done with this. Mm. And it feels really held back. I, I don't think it feels held back because I think Tyler Perry is saying exactly what he wants to say in, in these movies that he's been making. Well, um, I mean, obviously the message I, I was, is clear, but I, I, I mean, was like, lo- looking over his filmography, uh, I think he's only directed technically one film that has a central male lead, and that was Good Deeds oh. that he played himself. He's done a few en- ensemble pieces like Why Did I Get Married and, uh, and Why Did I Get Married Too. And technically, um, he's the lead in the Med- most of the Medea yeah, movies, but, but, but a female Medea's woman. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Although occasionally they imply that she's not, and I don't understand um, it. Well, it's whatever. confusing. Like, like, like he's playing a female character, though, and I think he's uh, really interested in a certain kind of female experience, yeah. and he is especially interested in not necessarily writing his like nuanced uh, films of social ills or social justice, but he is definitely trying to uh, explore the damage that male kind is doing to women, yeah. uh, specifically in the black community. And I think that in those things that interest him, that part of his uh, filmmaking uh, 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 vocabulary. Mm-hmm is kind of makes his films overall, like his filmography, a little bit more interesting than I think people give him credit for. He's seen as this sort of like broad broad uh, character caricature. He's seen as Medea. And his films are broadly melodramatic. If you've seen Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, that is balls-to-the-wall melodramatic to the point of it being comedic. It's oh actually my God. quite bad. The, the last like big revelation, mm. or the second-to-last big yeah. revelation of that movie, is handled... It's, yeah, they, it's they, handled they, like 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 they're like, they're preachy, they're ham fisted, mm-hmm. they're uh, blunt, and in some cases even crass about yeah. their uh, stringent moralizing. Yeah, it's so uh, damn funny that movie, yeah. and I know that there was really sincere a lot of it, but that's what makes it so great. Uh, but I think he actually has a lot on his mind. And I know. I, I'm really uh, fascinated by the fact that he keeps going back to this type of material yeah. because he is trying to enact a kind of justice on behalf of womankind. I actually and I, pointing out how the the men in these women's lives are the ones who are doing all of the damage. I've, I've always loved, um, mm. and I've never done a deep dive into Telly Perry's filmography. I've only seen. Mm-hmm. I don't know, however many I've seen, he directs a lot. <laughs> uh, but uh, but more than one. I've seen some Tyler Perry movies. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're right. I, I always appreciate that even though his films are sometimes uh, rough mm-hmm. or, or oddly constructed or feel rushed, he's always got an idea. He always has a perspective. He always has a thought in his head. I don't always mm-hmm. agree with it. Like, some of the Medea films have ideas about child rearing that I think borderline on abuse, but mm. um, 
Yeah, I, I appreciate that he is, for better or worse, an auteur. Mm. He has mm. a perspective. You can always tell a Tyler Perry movie. Um, I, he's an interesting filmmaker, and I think even his bad films, and I think this is very much a bad film, Hmm. Uh, are kind of more captivating because he's bringing something to it. And again, this one feels like he just dashed it off on a napkin. Right. But I'd rather have a Tyler Perry napkin than a Stephen Gagan Doolittle. Yeah, totally. I would rather watch this again than watch Doolittle again. Hmm. Although, granted, that's a low bar for anyone. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Mm. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, tell me about Underwater. I missed this one. Okay, uh, Underwater is an underwater thriller. Uh, yeah. you, you, you recently wrote a big uh, listicle about um, underwater thrillers, specifically from like this really tiny pocket in the late 80s. There was this weird thing where, uh, and I love this little period of history and no one talks about it too much, mm. uh, when before James Cameron's The Abyss came out, and The Abyss is a visual effects like linchpin, it's a really important like moment in visual effects, uh, but it was actually in many respects one of his least successful movies, it just mm. didn't hit, it was a really busy summer, same summer like Batman and Last Crusade came out, so... A lot of competition. Mm. But after Aliens and Terminator, people knew that if James Cameron's doing something, it's probably going to be a big deal. So a lot of other filmmakers had knockoff movies ready. Most of them beat the abyss to theaters. (laughs) And as a result, none of them did great because the abyss didn't actually have all that much appeal in the first place and everything else was deemed an abyss knockoff anyway. But some of them were actually pretty good. And I will say this right now. I, I did, like, all of them, and most of them are junk, but... Mm. Leviathan? <laughs> Leviathan fucks. <laughs> Leviathan, it's derivative, and you can tell that the structure is very clearly built on the bones mm. of Alien, Alien and, yeah. and the thing, because the monster is more mutating your body, that kind of thing. Mm. But once you accept that, like, the structure of it's a little derivative, that movie's got an amazing fucking cast. Mm-hmm. It's got Peter Weller, it's got uh, Hector Elizondo, it's got Ernie Hudson, it's got Daniel Stern, it's got, um, oh, who was the guy, who was uh, uh, Rambo's boss? Uh, in, uh, oh, uh, Richard Crenna. Richard Crenna. Yeah. Richard Crenna, Meg Foster, great cast, awesome visual effects, really cool set. It's a real movie. Mm-hmm. And I part of me would rather watch that again than The Abyss. But anyway, so I wrote an article about how there were like five or six of those things that came out within one year. Mm. And most of them are pretty forgettable, but some of them have cool monsters. Anyway. Um, uh, this uh, t- is... It's an alien knockoff, but that's descriptive, not pejorative. Uh, yeah, because it, there, there are a lot of alien knockoffs. Aliens set a template mm. for that kind of movie. So It, it, it takes it's place like, It's like in saying a, every sports movie is a Rocky mm. knockoff. It just... That's how movies are made now. It takes place in a, a station deep, deep, deep underwater, right on the, the lip of the Mariana Trench. And um, it, the introduction is the sparest thing you've ever seen. Uh, we see Kristen Stewart. She's brushing her teeth, and we hear some inner monologue about how, I always said I was a pessimist. And then shit hits the fan immediately. <laughs> 30 seconds. Like, that's all wow. we get. And everything shakes. That Like, the whole, everything gets sort of crunched, and it becomes this disaster. A survival film, very much like the Poseidon Adventure. Now that's moxie. Where, uh, yeah, I love well, they, they it. Kind of, they, start, they start going through these uh, these <laughs> corridors. It's really amazing, amazing, amazing production design, because the, the sort of corridors, they feel sort of lived in, uh, the, like something that would actually function. It's not just a set. And uh, Kristen Stewart is really terrific in sort of uh, portraying a certain kind of bravery without having a lot of, uh, like, 
personal dialogue mm-hmm. where it's all just sort of, it's sort of like um, you might compare it to uh, the Ellen Ripley character in Alien. Yeah, who, Ellen Ripley who, who doesn't, does, actually... doesn't talk about herself a lot. You no, know, but, in fact, but the first we half get of that movie, she doesn't even have a lot of dialogue. Yeah, but we do get a lot of her character through just sort of how efficient she is. They have to find the captain. They have to figure out how to survive this scenario. Um, and it, it involves having to put on uh, gigantic scuba suits and walking along the ocean floor to like another station that's all somewhere so mm. they can get to an even larger station which as it turns out might be under attack from killer fishmen yes uh, killer fishmen are pretty cool looking I like killer fishmen mm. killer fishmen have a boss Oh my god. I'm not going to tell you who the boss is. I have a theory. I think, and it's exactly what you think it is. Yes, that's awesome! <laughs> um, all, all this all sounds of, awesome, and I regret not seeing this in it's, it's incredibly well paced. It's really well filmed. The photography is excellent. I love all of the characters. I love the sense of humor it has. It's it's desperate, but it's paced really well, so it slows down at the right moments, so it can kind of reconnoiter. We know exactly where everybody's going at any given moment. Uh-huh. It does everything you sh- that these kinds of thrillers ought to do, but often don't. Uh, my complaint is mm. that when they put on their suits and go out into the ocean, you can't see a damn thing. Yeah. Because you're at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, nothing's illuminated, and when they turn on their lights in order to sort of give this kind of murky atmosphere to the underwater scenes, uh-huh. the lights only sort of shine off all the particulates and you kind of glimpse things in the background. And it gets to the point where you can't tell what's going on in any given scene until they get inside and take their suits off again. So there's actually a big portion in the middle uh-huh. where a lot of creatures are attacking, but everybody's moving around so quickly and everything's so murky that you can't you can't see it. You know what's a movie that handled that that shit really really well was 47 mm. meters down. Yeah, they, they had actually sen- had a good yeah. sense of spatial continuity. In yeah, and, and but you also had that sense of the inky void of the infinite and the, yeah, and the yeah. underwater and everything. It's really great. Um, again, I didn't see this. Mm. All that sounds awesome. What you're describing is something that I wish more filmmakers would think about. Mm. I think there's a lot of filmmakers who are interested in, like, what would it really look like? Yeah. And sometimes that's interesting to explore, and you can really get something out of that. Mm. And sometimes you find out what it really looks like, and you realize it would look like shit, and Mm. we should make it look different for dramatic purposes. We've already got fish monsters. Yeah. So let's let's cut the audience a little slack and show like mm. something a little bit more clearly than it would normally be in reality mm. because that will be more satisfying the, to the audience. Filmmaking. Uh, it was that was one of my big complaints with Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, if a monster stepped next to you, there'd be like smoke everywhere and everything would be really unclear. It's like you know, in this movie about a giant radioactive dinosaur monster fighting a golden hydro from space, a little less reality is okay. Yeah, yeah, you can scale that. Ironically, in that Godzilla movie, you can scale it back a bit. Oh, yeah, seriously. And and I feel like they made that mistake here. Um, The director of this film, uh, what is his name? Uh, William Eubank. William Eubank uh, previously made a, a film that I was actually really fond of called The Signal. Um, um, there are two movies called The Signal, mm-hmm. one of which was like a horror anthology movie, mm-hmm. but the one we're talking about was in 2014, which is about uh, a kid who is being held captive in a government installation. It's, it's like this Area 51 sort of thing, and yeah. he and his friends are kept in separate yeah. cells, and they're They may have been being, exposed to something. There's yeah, some kind of alien virus, and it, like their body parts are being replaced, and it's really kind of creepy, and I did mm-hmm. like sort of the aesthetic of that movie, and it ended in this really bizarre way. Yeah. Uh, it had the sort of like superhero origin story feeling to it as well in yeah. an alien abduction movie which is I, totally bizarre I, lo- I was fond of that movie I love that um, movie as a 
state as a director's statement, look at me, mm-hmm. look what I can do. I don't think the movie itself is particularly good, but I do think it's full of ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically someone just <coughs> it's the best demo reel. <laughs> that's, that's it's a fair I, way to play. I don't it. think I it's think a great it, movie. I think, I think it's a good demo. I think it reel. functions fine as a film as well. I think there's <laughs> like some good body horror stuff and really a lot of mystery. That, In moments, yes, I find mm, the structure frustrating, and okay. I feel like it's one of those movies but, where uh, it's, it's sort of like that. Oh, what was that movie? Akin. Oh, where it's like, <laughs> oh God, there's some man. good ideas in here, but it feels like you're saving them all for the sequel. Mm. That's how I felt about Signal. They're saving the good stuff for the sequel. Ken was so bad. Uh, what an ending, though. The, the ending's funny. The, the, the ending is such the end, a... The ending moves it, moves it from being a, like kind of a bad, boring movie into a bad, bonkers movie, because that yeah. ending makes no sense. I know, but like, it this, makes this, me wish there was new, a sequel I'll never get to this, see. This new plot element is introduced like in the last five minutes. It's just I know, and so it's totally, totally different genre. That's hilarious. Yeah, no, and Underwater is, yeah, just a, a good, straightforward, totally efficient underwater thriller that you kind of kind of long for. That sounds and, fun. And, yeah, and the, the monsters are pretty cool when you can see them. Yeah. Uh, and, and the big, uh, and the monster boss is a pretty cool monster boss. Mm. All that sounds pretty good. Mm. I wish I could say the same about The Grudge. I didn't see The Grudge. Okay, so The Grudge. How, how, many, how many films are called The Grudge now? Uh, quite a few. Uh, so The Grudge is... Uh, the latest American film uh, in the Grudge franchise. Uh, the Grudge franchise is a very long-running, or maybe the better word would be prolific, mm. horror franchise in Japan, because it actually only dates back to like the late 90s, but there's a ton of them. Mm. Started off as a couple of short films. Those short films were expanded into a couple of TV movies. The TV movies were so successful <laughs> that they ended up going to a, a major theatrical release, which was called Juon the Grudge. Mm-hmm. That's the version most people have seen. A lot of people haven't seen the early ones. That version, Juon the Grudge, mm-hmm. I think is one of the scariest movies ever made. Bold statement. I th- it just I, scared I think, the I think shit out of me. I think it's me. quite good. Um, it just, the tone of it, the apocalyptic uh, <laughs> uh, tone they struck to uh, like a ghost story just scared the shit out of me. Uh, so anyway, uh, the main gist of the grudge is um, much like a lot of ghost stories, something really, really bad happened in a house, and I left ghosts behind. But the difference with the grudge is that the grudge was such a horrifying murder, mm-hmm. series of murders, uh, that the house isn't just haunted; the house is cursed, mm-hmm. and everyone who comes into contact with the house, everyone who steps inside, takes the curse with them when they go. So, so they, it's like they themselves become haunted. Yeah, so it's 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 like a, a haunted house story by way of a viral infection, mm. um, and there's something that's just completely inescapable about it. Like usually in the haunted house story, the question is why don't you leave the house because it follows you mm. and it does horrible, horrible, horrible things. Uh, I've seen some of the Japanese movies; they're all varying degrees of scary. I think Juwan is one of the better horror movies ever made. Uh, it led to uh, three. American movies based on The Grudge. Mm. Uh, the first two were directed by the original filmmaker, Takeshi Shimizu. Mm. Um, and I actually mildly prefer The Grudge 2 because I think it's covering less familiar territory if you've seen the original film. Uh, but they're competent, and if you missed the Japanese versions, they'll probably scare you because you haven't seen that mm. kind of scare before that was a, it was one of the bit that movie in the ring mm-hmm. helped bring J horror to America and there was a whole wave of J horror very, very uh, adaptations very, very of brief but prolific wave yeah. yeah some of them were good most of them were kind of superfluous and the originals were readily available mm-hmm. so there was no particular reason to see the remake of Tale of Two Sisters which I actually think was Korean but you know regardless I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah but like yeah. 
What, what I admire about uh, that whole wave of, of J-horror and J-horror remakes that made it their way to the States in the early 2000s is... Um, they weren't so like they weren't reliant on jump scares in quite the same way. Yeah. In fact, they introduced an, this new element of of uh, sort of these ghost stories and, and slasher films. The notion of the slow scare. Yeah. Where the unease the, was so important. Well, it, it wasn't just the unease. It wasn't the atmosphere. It's that the monster would appear, but it wouldn't like jump out at you. The monster would appear and would look really terrifying. Usually, it's a you know young pale kid with long wet hair. Uh, and but they would slowly walk toward the protagonist who was frozen in fear, like on a bed or something. Mm. And they were able to play that as one gigantic, elongated jump scare. Yeah, the, the, the big climax of the sort of, ring yeah, is really creepy. I saw that sort of thing in a lot of uh, of these J horror films, and it was something that I've only ever seen in J horror films. Mm. Uh, the elongated jump scare. Yeah. And I loved that. It's good stuff. The, the films typically weren't that good. I thought the plots were really convoluted, and the mm. curses never made any sense, but I always liked the way they handled those the, the fright. The, the, the horror terminology, the horror mm. vocabulary... Of that mm. wave, and and you know it's still a popular genre, mm. but like you know that particular kind of mostly Japanese, some mm. Korean uh, and other uh, mm. supernatural horror movies. Um, it was just not how Americans were telling horror stories. Mm. It just wasn't even similarly themed stuff. Like go back to like the better ghost story movies. Mm. Just wasn't working the, on the same uh, wavelength. And horror as a genre, relies on, or I think it needs, like, a relatively frequent injection of novelty. Mm -hmm. Because if something is familiar, it stops being scary. Yeah. So, when something is unfamiliar in a horror milieu, take a drink, Mm -hmm. uh, it makes an impact and it can scare the living shit out of you. And I think so many American audiences were just totally unused to the way The Ring and The Grudge were telling stories. And actually, kudos, I'm not the biggest fan of Gore Verbinski's The Ring. I think it's a fine adaptation. I just Mm -hmm. prefer the original. Um, But kudos to Gore Verbinski and kudos to Takeshi Shimizu for not trying to Americanize the movies too much and trying to keep that particular blend of pacing and tone Mm -hmm. uh, and bring it to America. I, I, someone who is way more uh, knowledgeable than I, I would love to read an article and I'm sure it's probably been written. I just Mm -hmm. haven't thought to look for it Uh, because it was interesting is how those movies have all of this, a lot of Japanese culture built into them Mm -hmm. But in the case of the Grudge movies in particular, in the American franchise, it's all about Americans running into it. Yeah. There's a few Japanese characters, I think, in in uh, the Grudge 2. In fact, the, both the first two Grudge movies in the remake mm-hmm. or, uh, uh, cycle uh, are both set in Japan. Yeah. But I, they don't actually go out of their way to talk about like what it means that Americans are <laughs> encountering, much like the audience... Mm-hmm. These sort of terrifying supernatural entities that don't fit the rules of their own well-established mythologies. Mm. You know, like running into the ghosts from the grudge is very different than if America ran into a vampire. Because we have a frame of reference for a vampire. Right. We didn't here. Um, Anyway, uh, so they made two decent, you know, reasonably scary grudge Mm. movies in America. There was a straight-to-video one called The Grudge 3, which, unlike the other Grudge movies, uh, was linear. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of the other Grinch movies are just people wandering into the house and we see the story's kind of out of order. Um, and actually making it linear completely ruins it because there's <laughs> no driving force mm-hmm. in a grudge movie. The ghosts don't want anything. They're just anger. They have a grudge. Yeah. That's it. They don't want anything. There's no end game. There's no way out. Mm-hmm. It's just evil pushing f- forward constantly, and evil always wins. Mm-hmm. So when you take them out of their linear structure, it, you create kind of a tapestry of horror, and if you make them linear, it just doesn't feel satisfying somehow. It's, it was interesting to see someone try, uh-huh. but I'm glad that, at the very least, the new grudge, which is totally within the continuity of the other American movies, it's yeah, called... has the same title. has the yeah. same title, but... It's actually like frustrating, but all it's right, weird. Yeah. Um, the new grudge keeps that sort of uh, you know that displaced chronology. So we have a series of stories about. Uh, initially, it's about a woman who was a caretaker at, mm. of an old woman who lived at the grudge house. <laughs> the caretaker moved back to America, and she brought the grudge with her. Okay, her house. And God, it was it Pennsylvania? It was one of those. Um, it's in that area. Is mm. uh, become the site of a new horrifying murder that creates its own the Grudge Curse. And now everyone who goes into this house in the suburbs takes the Grudge with them. Okay, fine, I'm, I'm, fine. I'm with you, fine. All it's right. fine. It's whatever it is. And um, we see a series of different stories. All of them with a really good cast, by the way. There's one storyline with John Cho and Betty Gilpin, uh, where they're married and he's a realtor trying to sell the house. Uh, there's one with um, Frankie Faison and Lynn Shea, where they're married, but she has Ooh. dementia, and he wants to, um, you know, help her end her life with dignity. So he hires Jackie Weaver. Okay. To help him do that. Again, what a cast. This is really good. Andrea Riseborough and Damien Bashir are cops Ooh. investigating a murder that took place there. Dude. And you're like, wow. <laughs> Why is this boring? <laughs> because it's really boring. Like, it's something just... It, it trudges along with a grim determination. No interest, no enthusiasm. The scares feel really perfunctory. Some of them are sort of a remake of earlier scares from different grudge movies in Japan. Mm-hmm. The John Cho, Betty Gilpin one in particular. The way it plays out in like the original TV movie of The Grudge is so fucking horrifying. <sighs> like you're watching like, oh my god, I can't fucking even believe what I'm watching. And the way it plays out here is a lot of it's off camera, so it doesn't really have a lot of impact. Like, not in the good way, but in the cop-out kind of way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the scares involving, like, bathtubs and stuff like that are just repeated over and over again in the franchise. Jeez. A lot of the scares are perfunctory. Which yeah. I, I, th- I, I think they were trying to go for something, like, they really snuck up on you. Mm-hmm. But, like, one of the first things in the movie is the ladies like, leaves the grudge house and she's walking down an alleyway and she just passes a ghost. <laughs> it's like it plays out like with that level of enthusiasm mm. and horror, and you're just sort of like, oh, well, that that can be scary in its way. It can uh, be, talk, but it's not. Talked about it follows recently on the but podcast. it follows yeah. is training the audience to be interactive. Mm. We're looking for the ghost. Yeah, it's another thing to like just pass a ghost and go, oh hey, mm. like that's a different total vibe mm. entirely. Um, this is gonna be an interesting one, I think, to study. Like, because I a lot of people like. I remember when I was in film school, a lot of people wanted to make horror movies, and mm-hmm. they were trying to figure out what movies to study. 
Okay. Um, like, what are the... Because there are a lot of great horror movies out there, but what can we learn from? And, like, one thing what we learned uh, at UCLA was Evil Dead 2 is one of the best-paced horror movies ever. Well, because it's paced like a comedy as well. Well, that's part yeah. of it. But also, you know, you look at, like, a lot of horror movies and the way that they pace out their jump scares. Mm-hmm. They're, like, on a three-count or a five-count. Uh-huh. You know, like, okay, so you walk into a room, nothing there. One, two... Three, ha! There like boom, yeah, or yeah. there's a five count, but like it's usually like you watch Paranormal Activity Ghost Dimension. Every scare is on the same count, yeah. and it's not scary as well because you just you fall into a rhythm and you know where it's going, and nothing is ever surprising, unexpected. Yeah. Evil Dead Two, every jump scare, and there's a million of them. He's on a different rhythm. Yeah, there'll be one on a three count, one on a two count, one on a seven count, and it's like that's, jazz. It is actually, and you can totally like learn a lot from it. I would love to, like, take this The Grudge mm-hmm. and the original Jew on The Grudge and say, like, in theory, they're both doing the same thing. Why is the new one not hitting? And it can't just be familiarity. Because I'm okay with the structure. I'm okay with the sequels. There's something about this where it just feels kind of inert and humdrum. Hmm. And that's really frustrating because what a cast... Mm. Score is really scary. I'll give him that, but like, yeah, the movie just makes no impact. It sucks. I mean, it just could be out. We're done with the grudge. We don't need any more grudge. I, it's coming well, kind of late in this. The trend is long since over. Well, it's Japan is still film. going fine, but yeah, but not in America. I know. I'm just saying, like, there's an American film. Horror franchises don't die; they just sleep. That's true. Like yeah, they, they Guillermo, don't. Guillermo del Toro said, "Evil never dies; it just states." Yeah, exactly. So, mm. like. There's only a matter of time before someone did another grudge. Mm. They waited the better part of a decade. I think that's a reasonable amount enough of, of time for a horror movie to go fallow. Um, yeah, it just didn't really come back for a while. No, right. I don't feel like... I feel like I've said my piece. Let's move on. Uh, tell me about... Okay, we're actually coming yeah. down. Uh, tell me about Spies in Disguise. Spies in, uh, Spies in Disguise came out on Christmas. Um, it was you know good counter-programming. Uh, this is a film about a super spy played by, I think his name is Ster, not Sterling Hayden, but uh, <laughs> uh, Sterling, uh, yeah. who is played by Will Smith. He is the star spy, and of course he works alone, uh, which means by the end he's going to learn to work with the team. Uh, that's the way these things work. Uh, Tom Holland plays a would-be Q who works in sort of the gadgets department of the spy organization, and his M.O. is non-lethal devices. All of his spy gadgets involve, like, projecting kittens onto a cloud of glitter so everyone's distracted by a cute kitten and the good guy can get away, which ends up working in the movie, by the way. Cool. Uh, Also, you know, here's something called uh, a mobile hug, and it's this big huggy bubble that protects you from when you fall. Does he invent a Herkimer Um, battle jitney? He does not. He's not as as quirky as Dr. Heller. Um, We're talking about the character from Mystery Mystery Man, Man. who's a mad Um, scientist who only invents non-lethal weapons. Yeah. But they're all very quirky. Like they make you. Was one they make you fart? No, uh, no. Make that you, that's the spleen. One right. one is like, like it shrinks your clothes so that's you can't move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, I knew it was something physical, body humor. And the yeah, there's this their non lethal tank, the Herkimer Battle Jitney. Uh, <laughs> I learned recently that the reason Tom Hanks or Tom Hanks, Tom Waits, uh, who plays Doctor Heller in that movie, the reason he gesticulates with his hands in front of his face so much is he couldn't remember his lines, so he wrote his dialogue on his hands. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Yeah. Um, Anyway, the, the, the Tom Holland character uh, is, is sort of um, is a sensitive young lad. He's a pigeon fancier. He likes rainbows. He likes unicorns. To me, he reads as queer, 
Although I don't think that was necessarily the intention of the filmmakers. But I like to think that this is a film, a children's film with a queer co-lead. Uh, because uh, uh, he was framed for a crime he did not commit, uh, the Sterling character has to go on the run. The only person he can trust is the Tom Holland character. Tom Holland ends up giving him an experimental serum that turns him into a pigeon. And like you is, do. And that is the comedy of the film. Uh, it is not at all obnoxious, <laughs> which I think is a high compliment one can pay a, an animated film about a, a spy pigeon. The credible Mr. Limpet. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's actually fine. Mm. Yeah. I think Cranwell's Limit's mm. a great movie, but anyway. Uh, I, I did enjoy watching this film. I think I was colored by... My enjoyment was colored by the fact that I took my four-year-old son to see it, which I know is uh, not necessarily a barometer for the film's quality, but my well, son was having a good time. And I was, in watching it with my son, trying to sort of see it, how he was seeing it like a movie for the first time, and I was actually noticing how well t- well put together this film was. If it had sort of whiffed something uh, in like its villain or a motivation or was not really good about certain emotional beats or, or rude humor, I would have picked up on that, I think, a little bit more strongly. And I think even your son would have, although it wouldn't be articulate. You were telling mm. me um, uh, how, like, you know, your son's a little kid. How old is your son? He's, he's four? four. He's four and yeah. a half. Okay. Yeah. And he was kind of getting scared. A little bit. Well, I remember you took him to see Secret Life of Pets, and the wolves kind of scared him yeah, a little bit. And there's a and there's it. a villain in this one. He's it's you know, a knockoff on Doctor No, so he's got like a, a mechanical robot hand and kind of yeah. like it's a big claw. And at one point, it's revealed that like part of his face was damaged, so he's kind of a scary monster guy with a robot claw, right. and that really scared him. But you said um, that you actually were able to talk him through this and teach him sort of how movies work. Well, because he he gets really scary. He's like, I gotta go. I can't I can't watch the rest of this yeah, movie. Run and, from the monster. And so I kind of had to whisper it's like well do you think the pigeons will be back because there were no pigeons when the the villains just sort of has everybody in its clutches it's like yeah i think the pigeons will be back and and what do you and i I actually asked him how do you think the heroes will save the day and that really kind of made the light go on you you taught him how to watch a movie like like, it's not just all of this horror and and death this is actually how the heroes have to beat this somehow it's a a problem to be solved and he think he he understood that and you just taught him Mm -hmm. in a rudimentary way Story structure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did something scary happen? Yeah. That's probably going to be defeated later, especially in a movie for little kids. Yeah. That's great. I, <laughs> I just love that story. I think that's really beautiful. Because I think there's a lot of people who don't walk their kids through how movies work. Mm. Um, or at the very least, they, they don't unless they have to. Right. Um, like, oh, they're so scared they can't go to bed because the Wicked Witch of the West was so scary. Mm-hmm. Then we'll have a conversation. Yeah. My mom to this day is terrified of the flying monkeys in Wizard of Oz. That's why I was never oh, allowed that's... to rent it. <laughs> I didn't see Wizard of Oz until I was 18. Oh, my god. Because goodness. my mom re- hated the flying oh, monkeys a... so much, she wouldn't let it in the yeah, house. That's too bad. Kids, can, kids should see the Wizard of Oz. But for whatever reason, the severed head alleyway in Return to Oz was fine. <laughs> and I was allowed to watch that as much as I wanted. Movie is scary as fuck. Um, yeah, Spies in Disguise is just sort of an efficient kids' entertainment, PG-rated, fine, uh, fine action set pieces that aren't all that elaborate. 
the humor is okay. There's a lot of like fart and butt jokes, as one might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, Except there's some subtext in there about uh, the Tom Holland character. Uh, well, and even yeah, the, the, the Tom, like I said, the Tom McCall, the Holland character, character uh, reads as queer. It's re- revealed at one point that uh, the Will Smith character is not just turned into a pigeon, but is turned into a female pigeon, right. and that actually is turned into a plot point that that uh, she is now a she, mm-hmm. uh, and. Nobody makes fun of that. It's not seen as sort of like this emasculation joke. Yeah, uh, it's actually just uh, this sort of like weird moment of open intergender positivity <laughs> that uh, it is kind of unexpected in a movie like uh, Spies in Disguise about a spy that turns into a pigeon. Uh, <laughs> while uh, Will Smith is the pigeon, there's a female pigeon that acts all amorous with Will Smith. But if it's oh, a no. female pigeon, we got a lesbian pigeon in there as well. Okay. So you, just brought some... up, you just brought up some really painful memories of the sword and the stone. Uh-oh. Oh, with that... It the, was a, the squirrel. The squirrel, that's right. The, One the of the saddest things... With, with the the boy when he turns into a squirrel. People, people talk a lot mm-hmm. about, like, on Twitter, like, hey, what's the kids' movie that traumatized mm-hmm. you? And for me, well, several. Mm-hmm. But the one that I, like, to this day hurts me is Sword in the Stone. <laughs> because Merlin is trying to teach... If you've ever seen it, it's a cute movie about Merlin teaching a very young Arthur various lessons mm-hmm. through magic before he becomes king. Uh, and one of the stories, Merlin turns him into a squirrel to give him a different sense of perspective. Mm-hmm. And while he's a squirrel, a female squirrel falls in love with him and tries to, you know, mm. she's really sweet, actually. She's not, like, <laughs> super aggressive. She's enthused, and she doesn't understand why he's so against her, and she does nothing wrong. And I remember feeling really bad for her, and then when he turns into, like, a person, the look of betrayal. <laughs> Like, the the heartache. Like, she's never going to get over this or even understand it. Mm. I feel so bad. I feel more bad for that squirrel than most characters in movies. And it's a squirrel. And it doesn't even speak. It's it's, it's, it's well acted in Mm. animation form. Is is Spies in the Skies that sad? No. no, no. Luckily, because it's a pigeon and it's an idiot... (laughs) We can kind of get over it pretty fast. And, uh, Why are you so anti-pigeon? I'm not anti-pigeon, but pigeons are dumb. <laughs> Although uh, uh, the Tom Holland character, his name is Walter, uh, does point out like interesting facts about pigeons. They can fly really fast, and they love puzzles and games, and they're more intelligent than you give them credit for. And also, everybody calls them rats with wings in well, the movie. Well, I mean, they're, they're vermin. They, they, are, they, they do are spread vermin. disease yeah. and, one and of, stuff, yeah. One of the jokes is, uh, one of the pigeons is, like, horrible, ratty-looking, ragged figure that has, like, a lollipop stuck to its head throughout the length of the movie, and it swallows everything and vomits it back up again. If anyone listening to our podcast is an expert on pigeons, please tell us if we're being too harsh to pigeons. <laughs> I beg of you. Uh, I really would love... A, I, I, I only, only if you know. I mean it. Like, mm-hmm. don't, like, just look it up on Wikipedia. Like, if anyone we know is, like, studying zoology or is, happens to be a bird expert or something yeah, like if that... There, if there are any yeah. p- pigeon, pigeon-centric pigeon ornithologists out there, That would be... Please mm-hmm. let us know if we're being too harsh on pigeons. Oh, and, and if, if Spies in Disguise is the uh, pigeon-championing movie that you hope it would be... <laughs> Also, it's got a good voice cast. Uh, okay. Reba McIntyre plays the bo- the spy boss character. Uh, oh, she's cool. DJ Khaled and Karen Gillan play like super spies out in the field. I like Karen Gillan. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, it's, I, it's a fine. It's a fine film. Uh, speaking of speaking mm. of like comedies, uh, like a boss. 
is also a movie you saw. It is. <laughs> it is a movie I saw. Oh my God. So we were complaining about how uh, Dr. Doodle Little felt like it was sort of uh, reworked to the point of being kind of incomprehensible. Like a Boss doesn't even know where, where it stands. Uh, and it has a promising premise because we have Tiffany Haddish and Rose Byrne, both amazingly funny comedians, uh, as best friends who have started their own cosmetics company. And uh, Selma Hayek plays the uh, billionaire makeup magnate who uh, offers to buy them out. And the premise of the movie, I think, is supposed to be the comedy that arises when Selma Hayek tries to essentially ruin their friendship by turning them against each other. Oh. That is not fodder for light comedy. Two friends who are constantly at risk of falling out. Now, if you're no, that's, that's it, like a sharp, dark comedy. Yeah, I was like, about to say, if, if you're playing it for, yeah, this kind of, like, cynical laughter, yeah. like a Todd Salon's kind of laugh. Or even just something then, with, like, uh, a, with like a bitter edge to it, like Dirty Rotten or, Scoundrels, or, where everyone's yeah, or, kind of a jerk to even, begin or, with. Maybe not Todd Salon's, that's a little too hard, but yeah. like, say Ben Stiller's direction, directorial. Like the cable guy yeah, kind of thing. That, yeah, that yeah, kind, yeah, like a dark kind of comedy. Then that would have played. Of course, Tiffany Haddish and Rose Byrne aren't necessarily those kinds of actresses. I, I'm, I've no doubt they could have played a part like that, but yeah, yeah. this is Excuse a me. really bland, brightly lit, middle-of-the-road Hollywood studio comedy that's supposed to have uh, fart jokes and broad comedy. And there's a few moments where uh, they get to sort of like jump off roofs and smoke too much and you cuss people out loudly in public. None of them are really funny. No, the, like the, it's one of those things where they like feel none like, of them are. Fu- I'm sorry, all of those people are funny. All of those people are funny. Jennifer Coolidge is in this movie. Oh, She's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Rose Byrne, they're, Tiffany they're Haddish, and even Selma Hayek can yeah, and, really and, pull out a zinger. They're and funny. Sal- and Selma Hayek is playing it to the nines. She gets this big fake hair. Do they gave her like this big set of fake teeth? So she's like this kind of uh, caricaturish character. Just okay. to, you know, because make her look fake and kind of scary, and, right. and it's hilarious. But, like, uh, scary. What does she have? Fangs? Well, oh, I mean, think of, like, Jim Carrey in The Mask. He's got those big square Oh, like teeth. a tombstone. Yeah, kind of like, thing. yeah. Okay, like, yeah. Not like fangs, right? <laughs> I, was, I was picturing, like, London after midnight, and she got this big shark mouth. Like, no, no, not like okay. that. Just, like, big yeah. square teeth. Got it. Um, there's not any humor here. And they're not really sure where they're going because you'd think it would be about. This person, it would be, I hate to cite this as a positive example, but think of Horrible Bosses 2, where our main, wow. our main characters invent wow. something, wait, wait, it's wait, wait, hang on, hang, stolen need... by another, by the, Christ, Christoph Waltz character in that movie, Yeah, and the three buddies uh, have to sort of band together to get revenge or steal it back. There's a plot there, there's action. People have been wronged. People have been People wronged. People are trying and, to yeah. do the wrong thing in order to get it back again. The there's, characters there's a structure yeah. there. Now, yeah, Sal- good, Salma Hayek is actively trying to wrong them. She says in dialogue that she's trying to drive these friends apart so she can buy their company from one of them for a song and then sell it off and make a lot of money. And yeah, yeah. she has all these evil corporate plans to ruin a friendship and earn money. Yeah. The main characters, however, don't know that they've been wronged until quite late into the film because it's been about them trying to survive Salma Hayek's tests, essentially. Like, can, can you do this, this, and this, and this with your business? How is that going to put a strain on your friendship? And so we get to just see their friendship straining over the course of a film. 
fine fodder for a, a, like a heartfelt drama about mm. friendship, not good for a broad comedy. And by the time they realize that they've been wronged, they really have to rush into this really contrived climax where uh, there's a makeup competition between our two main characters and these two other guys and Selma Hayek's in a, a lifeguard chair judging everything. And it's been rushed into this so quickly that there's no sense of urgency or energy or comedy to any of this. This is bland, flat garbage. It's frustrating that 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 sounds so toothless because Mm. actually the basic framework of an incredibly rich corporate tycoon Mm. forcing people who actually could benefit their profits but just are poor... Mm -hmm. Uh, to fight for their scraps is sharp. It, it's there's a lot you could do with that. It's sharp. It's poignant, yeah. and uh, there, there's, there's a lot anyone. There's do a with little that. bit of dialogue to that effect, but it's so scattered, and you yeah. know, starts to cover all of these themes about friendship instead. We're not getting any of that. Mm. Uh, it, it's kind of a pity. This is from the director of Star Maps and ah. Chuck and Buck. Uh, uh, Miguel Miguel Arteta. Yeah, Miguel, is, is yeah, the, yeah, he yeah. did uh, uh, Youth and Revolt. He did The Good Girl. Um, Didn't he do something like really? He did Alexander and the Ho- Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day as that, well, which I didn't mo- see. You know what? I've seen it. It's it's fine. Uh, it's a cute kids movie. I, it's it does a lot with the whole the idea is that everyone's like the whole family is having a terrible, horrible, no good because mm. the the whole kids book is he's and nothing can go right that day. Yeah. Uh, the gag of the movie is he, Alexander has that day, and then he makes like a liar, liar wish, and he gives that bad day to his entire family, so they can experience what he experienced. Yeah, so right. everyone has a day where nothing can go right, but it's uh, everyone had something really important that day. Like I'm mm. starring in the school play, I'm having a big business meeting, etc. Yeah, and, and, and it's Alexander like enjoying it, like all the misery from the sidelines to an extent, and then he learns a valuable lesson, yada yada yada. Um, it's fine. It's a cute right. enough movie. I liked it fine. Yeah. I, I, so the, you can, this director does have a, a sense of like a, a dark streak or something a little bit richer to deal with because you look at films like Star Maps and Chuck and Buck, uh, and you have this wonderful cast with this with a premise that could potentially be about something a little bit more serious if they bothered to make it into something that looks like they spent more than a, a, like two days filming it. Yeah. Uh, I I left very disappointed and a little bit dismayed and kind of angry because it's very bad. It's a January comedy through and through. Well, let me tell you about a February movie. Oh. Uh, Sort of. So, uh, (laughs) well, here's the deal. The Academy Award nominations were announced. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the films are ones that came out in the calendar year of 2019 because that's the whole point. However... Uh, foreign films don't necessarily work that way. In the Best International Feature category, they just have to be submitted mm-hmm. uh, by the country of origin. Right. Uh, most of them did have a, like a short qualifying run, but one of them, I think it's uh, the Polish entry, mm-hmm. uh, Corpus Christi, uh, is actually not actually getting a theatrical release until February. So it's nominated for an Academy Award for last year, because mm-hmm. it came out internationally last year, but it's coming in February. Uh, and I'm writing an article for The Wrap, which may or may not be out by the time this podcast premieres, but surely shortly after, in which I have been asked to rank every feature film nominated for an Academy <laughs> Award this year. And I had some catching up to do, and I got to catch up to Corpus Christi, and that's when I realized, oh, this one didn't even come out yet, so I'm going to do a little bit of a preview review here. Okay. Uh, because it's really good. All Actually, right. it's a really good year 
for the international feature category. Everything is good or great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've seen three of them because it's Parasite, Parasite's Le, brilliant, Les Miserables, Cor- We'll talk about that in a second. Cor- Corpus Christi. Yeah, talking um, about that right now. Uh, Pain, and, Pain and Glory, which Pain is great. Glory, yeah. Um, and uh, Honeyland, which oh, is okay. also the first uh, film to be nominated uh, for Best International Feature, previously Best Foreign Language Film, uh, Best International Feature, and Best Documentary because it's actually a documentary. Mm. Um, Honeyland is brilliant. Okay. Honeyland's a great movie. Do not miss Honeyland. I'll tell you that right now. Finally caught up to Pain and Glory. You were right. Pain and Glory is a great movie. Probably wouldn't have made my top ten, but it's excellent. Parasite is the shit. I love Parasite. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about Limits Rob in a minute. Corpus Christi is an interesting film for me from... We've been talking a lot in this episode about tone and how certain movies, you know... The what's on the page isn't necessarily what's making it to the screen because the tone's a little off and, mm-hmm. and different. Like Doctor Doolittle should have had this sense of wonder and said it's like fart jokes and mm-hmm. stuff and a dragon's butt. Corpus Christi is interesting because it plays with that, but in a smart way. Uh, the story sounds like really Capper esque, but it doesn't play that way. Okay, uh, it's a story of a convicted felon. He was in juvie, mm-hmm. uh, and he's. Let, being let out and we don't find out for a long time what he was in for what we do know mm-hmm. is that what he did and he admits to doing it was so bad that he cannot pursue his dream of becoming a priest hmm. he would like to be a priest very much so doesn't mean he doesn't like cocaine and having sex but he'd rather be a priest mm-hmm. uh and uh, so he's told, like, because of your crime, we, we can't accept you in the seminary. Just go try to live your best life. That's what the priest tells him at the uh, juvenile detention facility. Um, so he goes off to work at a sawmill. Mm-hmm. Crappy job, but he can get it as a parolee. And uh, while he is there, he goes to a church. And through a series of, he let it happen, but misconceptions... Uh, people start thinking he's a young priest who has just gotten out of the seminary. Okay. And he decides to run with it. <laughs> and it turns out that the priest in this small town, which is getting over a really terrible tragedy, it was like a, a vehicular accident that killed like six teenagers, mm-hmm. and everyone's still like reeling from this a year later. Um, the elderly priest in the town actually needs to go away. He's got like a heart condition or something. Mm-hmm. And he asks this young man to just... Could you hold down the fort for a couple of weeks? <laughs> so now he's yeah. giving confessions mm. and are giving communions. He's mm. blessing children. He's doing charity drives. He shouldn't be doing any of this. <laughs> it's a whole horrible lie. And you can see in your head, you're laughing. There's a, there's a comedy there, right? Mm. Um, you're seeing like... It reminds me of uh, the premise of that film Mumford. Yeah. You've seen Mumford I was about, about that yeah, too, yeah. Somebody who's posing as a shrink even though he's not qualified he's just a good listener but the yeah the irony is he's actually rather good at it mm-hmm. and at the end of the day people didn't care because he didn't hurt anybody uh-huh. the movie i was thinking of in addition to mumford was the movie we're no angels with uh robert uh, oh, uh, robert de niro and sean penn, sean penn yeah, yeah. where they're they're ex-cons or they're they're escaped convicts and they hide out as priests and they have to pretend to be mm-hmm. catholic priests david mamet wrote the screenplay for that movie which is so it's a little it's it's better than you'd think. There's a great bit at the end of that movie, which I'm going to ruin for you because it's so damn funny, and you're probably not going to see it if you don't want this ruined. Skip ahead thirty seconds. We're no angels is is worth, worth seeking out. It's, it's from it's, the yeah. '80s. People mm-hmm. people aren't necessarily looking for it, but there's okay. I'm not going to ruin it for you. All right. 
But there's a bit at the end with a bit of wordplay mm. that is brilliant. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Have you seen yeah, it, apparently? I have seen it. It's a really great ending to that movie. It's been a long time, but I have seen that. Really movie. great ending to that movie. Okay, fine. Um, but uh, this is not a comedy. This is not a sweet Capra story. This is actually a very somber, sobering story about faith and ethics and morality. Mm. And how this guy who, because he is trying to be moral, and because people grant him a certain amount of moral authority in conversations because he's wearing the, the mm. outfit, but because he isn't necessarily like linked to dogma, he is able to pull people out of their daily stupor and force them to confront things. And as mm. he learns more about this tragedy that has shaped this town and turned it into one of the most depressing places on Earth... Um, he actually forces other people to confront their own ethical and moral failings while he himself is engaged in Some really huge, horrible deception. Yeah. It's actually kind of complicated. Mm. And it's morally complicated, it's ethically complicated, it's tonally complicated. On one hand, it's very inspirational. On the other hand, it's really, I'm going to call it a downer, but you know, mm. it's, it's got a melancholy to it. Yeah. And it doesn't end the way I thought it was going to end, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Actually ended in a way that like a very interesting moment where for a second I was like, the credit's supposed to roll right now? Oh, okay, I guess we're doing it here. Interesting. Um, but I really do admire this movie. I think it's an excellent motion picture. I hope people go see it mm-hmm. when it gets announced. I think it's a long shot for best foreign language film just because Pain and Glory and Parasite have so much like traction behind them. Typically the f- the foreign language film that is the most famous, is one of the front runners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, anything can happen, mm. so who the hell knows. But yeah, good movie. I hope people check it out. Mm. And then uh, the other film that we're reviewing this week is another nominee in this category. This one actually did just come out like a, last week. In, um, in the States. In yeah. the States. Um, and we both saw this one, so why don't you tell me about mm. uh, Les Miserables? Uh, Les Miserables, uh, nothing to do with the Victor Hugo novel. Well, not uh, nothing, but it's tangential at best. It, it's not an adaptation of the Victor Hugo novel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it takes place in uh, modern-day Paris. Uh-huh. Near uh, where Victor Hugo wrote the novel. Yeah. That's yeah. mostly where it comes into play. And uh, it is about um, the people who live essentially in uh, the ghetto uh, just outside of the city. And it is about the... On, on one hand, we're sort of meeting the people who live in this area. There's a lot of uh, rampant crime. There's a lot of kids who are just sort of trying to get by, and we get to see a lot of really uh, good groundwork slice-of-life drama from the kids' lives mm-hmm. and what it's like to sort of live in the essentially the project. Meanwhile, uh, me- training day. Yeah, meanwhile, the, the, the B-plot is training day. Uh, a young, idealistic cop is doing a ride-along with a pair of... Uh, tough cops who have worked that neighborhood for a long, long time, and it turns out they are incredibly corrupt and racist. Uh-huh. Uh, like not, not like so, not like um, mm-hmm. you know, bank heist corrupt, but like they'll they're clearly not doing things the way it should be mm-hmm. done. They've gotten really comfortable in their position of authority and abusing it in really regular, everyday ways to the extent. Mm-hmm. And I think this action movie is really clever in how they portray this. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be very difficult for him to complain to their supers, like their their, their superiors, mm-hmm. about what they did. Yeah, like oh, he pulled over this one girl and was really abusive to her, mm-hmm. and then it was like, but she had a joint. Mm-hmm. Okay, she did have a joint. 
it doesn't sound yeah, like that bad a thing happened. But when you're there, clearly he's abusing his well, power. What I and what I appreciate is you know in, in something like Training Day, which is such an over the top movie, especially when compared to this really gritty uh, drama that Les Misérables is. Uh, it, it's yeah, the, the crime is so blatant. Mm. That, you know, you're wondering why Ethan Hawke would stay with this guy throughout the day. It's like, okay, no, I'm leaving right now. I'm reporting you because what you're doing is rampantly illegal. Yeah. Um, what's going on here is much more insidious. And you can see that, the, you know, the the rookie cop, who's he's actually not a rookie, he's just from another city. He, he's new to um, the city. He's new to the area, so they're giving him a ride along because he doesn't know And, and they keep saying, this is how we do things around here. And he says repeatedly, this is wrong. And you can see him going back and forth between aching to do the right thing and stop this guy and looking at the criminals that these guys are shaking down and seeing them as that, like legitimately dangerous. Because mm-hmm. some of them are. So, yeah, yeah. And um, it, it all comes into a head where there's... Uh, a, a lion cub gets kidnapped throughout the course <laughs> of the movie, such a weird which, which puts, uh, picks, kicks off this whole subplot that like angers a lot of the the local uh, criminal underground, and it all sort of comes to a head when a young boy who's like maybe thirteen years old, yeah, a kid, uh, gets shot in the face like with like a beanbag. Yeah, uh, he's he's like ho- horrendously, horrendously injured by this police weapon, and mm-hmm. they think he might be dead. Mm-hmm. And and, it's, and it turns and the, out the drama, that someone yeah. might have seen them and filmed yeah, and, and yeah, and and, that, and it turns into this big, this big drama about how the cops are going to cover that up, and it it's ends up coming to a head in a really kind of naturally violent way that's sort of like a cross between Training Day and something like Do the Right Thing. Where I actually really like the lot, ending of this There's movie. a lot of uh, just horrendous racial tension that's been bubbling throughout this whole thing mm-hmm. that you know it's going to explode at any minute. And the catalyst for causing that is this one cop who is essentially trying to do the right thing uh, paired off with this young boy who has been pushed a little too far. Yeah, I think even though those two characters don't meet or interact in any kind of meaningful way, they are kind of balancing this entire film. Um, when you think about by calling the movie Les Misérables, mm. they're inviting comparison mm. to to the mm. to the play or the, to, not to the play to mm. the novel or maybe the musical. Mm. I guess I don't know. Um. And what is uh, Les Miserables? Really, it's about dignity. Mm. Uh, it is about um, upheaval, mm-hmm. social upheaval. Uh, it is about the immorality oh, of about, police who think mm. they can do no wrong. It's about class injustice more than yeah. anything. And I think the way that this particular <sighs> film concludes in a mm. way that is natural, and yet the exact way it goes down is unexpected. Mm reframes the movie for me because I'm watching the movie and I'm like this is fine mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm into it it's a little derivative of Training Day I clearly they saw it <laughs> right um, and it's, there's some good acting here yeah, and there it's, it's, not, it's not it's a bad film it's a much more realistic style yeah, than, yeah. no it's not it's not a bad movie any stretch of it's a good movie mm-hmm. but I'm finding it unremarkable Mm-hmm. And then the ending just comes along and is a little more daring and I really do like the way that they frame everything that we've seen, and we've seen it as a conflict mm. between the police and, depending on your point of view, like the criminal underworld or just the people in this neighborhood. Mm. Um, and the ending of the movie argues that the actual like injustice and the social uprising mm. is going to come from a different place. 
And I actually really liked that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting just way to just completely turn the whole movie around. And I can see why, based mm. on this ending kind of alone, yeah. uh, why this was France's choice for uh, their submission for Best International Feature, as opposed mm. to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a much better film. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Sig- I, I honestly think it could have been a front runner, but I can see why they thought this would have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Um it's interesting. I, it's a good cop movie, um, but it kind of doesn't come together until the end. But the ending is so striking yeah. that I do recommend it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's, it's it's really quite good. It's, yeah. it's stirring and immediate and uh, frantic in a way that makes it feel important rather than just panicked. And yet I feel like a lot of that sense of importance, at least until that very end... Mm-hmm comes from the tone as opposed to the actual events. Yeah. Uh, and I think it finally saves itself at the end. I would actually like to rewatch this at some point with knowing what I know about how it ends mm-hmm. and try to look at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, and I think maybe it'll play even better. But as it stands, yeah, it's an excellent film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is better. All right. Uh, <laughs> sorry. It mm-hmm. just is. Uh, we're moving on. Uh, so that is... Uh, our series of reviews, we're going to give them our critically acclaimed ratings. It's been a few weeks since we've done this, so in case you're new, uh, at the end of every episode, we rate our films on a scale of C- to C+. Uh-huh. C is average. Most movies are average. That's how average works. <laughs> That's what the word means. Uh, C- is below average, which could be everything from, dang it, it just doesn't work, to uh-huh. the worst thing ever made. Yeah. Uh, and then C plus is above average, which is basically we definitely recommend it to one of the best movies of all time. Anywhere in that gray area, <laughs> you get a C plus. And uh, the of course it was this whole format was specifically designed to never be quoted on posters because mm. C plus just doesn't sound like <laughs> the rave review it really is. So uh, Les Misérables, mm. Whitney, what are you giving us? That's a C plus. I think people should see Les Misérables. Uh, it's a low C plus for me. Mm. I, I find myself a little distracted by the formula, but in the end, it comes together. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, Corpus Christi uh, is a C plus. It's an excellent drama, a little dour. So beware of that going in. It's going to sound. Like a feel-good film. It's not. But it's a feel-feelings film. And I do appreciate that. Uh, like a Boss. Like a Boss. C-minus. Skip it. Run from it. <laughs> uh, Spies in Disguise. Yeah, Spies in Disguise. A C. Yeah, okay. Good, good animated film. Not, nothing extraordinary, but I enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, the Grudge uh, is a C-minus. Um, a lot of people are saying, it's like, ah, oh, it's so terrible. It's one of the worst. Mm. It's not. It's just mm. an underwhelming and kind of dreary horror movie that doesn't have enough... It, it doesn't fluctuate enough in tone. It just yeah. feels kind of just dour the entire way through and doesn't work. Uh, underwater. Underwater, C+. Ooh. Recommended. Yeah, go, go to the, go that one. It's good, right. efficient horror uh, movie. Tyler Perry's Fall from Grace. I give it a C. Really? I, I, yeah, I, 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 I like a good corny thriller, even if it's full of, like, riddled with plot holes, and this this totally fulfills that. Fills fills the need. I can't quite bring myself to give it a C. I think it's too shoddily constructed to give it a C. Uh, okay. However... Uh, I, I, I'll say this with any Tyler Perry movie, it's not a complete wash, and if you like his stuff, it might be mm. worth seeing just to see how it falls in. Okay. But yeah, I think this is ultimately the production quality is too low to give this anything resembling <laughs> a real right. recommendation, not but it was an interesting watch regardless. Mm. Uh, just Mercy. Just Mercy. Also a C. Okay. Yeah, so, some good actors giving... Uh, I, what I wish were better performances. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you. I give it a C. I think I liked it a little bit more than you, but 
Yeah, it, it just doesn't have enough punch for a movie about such a serious uh, topic. I think mm-hmm. it was going for compassion, but it ended up feeling just kind of sleepy. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, Doolittle, which I assume is C pluses all around. Uh, sure. No, this is a C minus <laughs> film. It is. It was awful. It was. It was kind of a miserable experience. Yeah. Just baffling and bad and not funny. What if we've seen the worst movie? I, would it be great if we've seen the worst movie of the year already and it's all Look, uphill from it, here? Yeah. If it if it doesn't get any worse than Doolittle, then we'll be doing fine in twenty twenty. <laughs> Uh, so next week, uh, we'll be back uh, with more movie reviews. Uh, that episode might be a little late, because as some of you know, I will be performing at the Movie Trivia Schmodown in New York over the weekend. Mm-hmm. So we might not be able to record on Sunday night. Might have to record on Monday or something. We'll do, I'll do my best. Okay. We'll see how tired I am. Um, but uh, next week, we'll be back with reviews of The Gentleman, Last Full Measure, The Color Out of Space, and, oh my god, you guys, it's real, Step Up. Year of the Dance. <laughs> that is Step Up 6 for those keeping count. Yeah, this is an international production that's part of the Step so Up it's franchise. A, it's a Chinese film. And it, uh, yeah, it almost didn't get released over here. It was released like all over the world. And I was I was asking publicists, is this ever going to come out? Going straight to video next week. We'll review it. You better believe we're going to review it. I'm super stoked. If there's a Step Up film anywhere in the world, <laughs> we will track it down. If you can find it, and if you can review it, then, <laughs> then you, you can hire. Step up six. Um, so that's coming up. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, you can contribute and help keep shows like this one you're listening to right now. Uh, going and going strong. Uh, we also have a ton of exclusive content over there, including uh, our Star Trek podcast, mm-hmm. All Our Yesterdays. We're reviewing every single Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. In production order. Uh, we're still on the original series. Going to be there for a bit because, day there are a lot of them. Hmm. But it's really fun. Uh, we've got Only the Best. We're reviewing every single picture ever nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Uh, that's one of the more interesting deep dives, especially as we're on like the early years with a lot of films that have kind of slipped through the cracks of history. I love that show. Uh, we've got commentary tracks. We've got TV movies. And stick around on the Critically Acclaimed Network. This is not exclusive on Patreon. This is going to be part of our regular rotation. We have a new podcast coming out in a couple of weeks. It is a Star Wars podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's a Star Wars podcast in which we're barely going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> uh, we're doing a podcast in which we're going to examine the cinematic influences mm-hmm. of Star Wars. The movies that led to... Star Wars being the movie that it is. And that goes everything from old-timey sci-fi movie serials from Hollywood to samurai films to films that you've probably never even heard of, but without which one of your favorite movies wouldn't exist. Mm. Um, So we're going to introduce that in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited to get that one started. We're still working on a name. Haven't just haven't finalized that one well, yet. We'll let you know as soon as we as soon as we figure it out. Um, but uh, yeah, so thank you very 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 much for listening. Uh, if you can't afford to help us out on Patreon, we totally understand. Leave us a review wherever you find us. Tell a friend that would really help us out a lot. And I uh, hope you have a really great week. Hope you're enjoying all your movies. Don't forget you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We do read your emails on our show. We've got mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Am I forgetting anything with it? You've got it all, dude. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> all right, everybody. Have a great week. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?